This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by coaches for coaches. Stop guessing, start assessing. What's up, guys? The Strong by Science podcast here. I got a special edition for you today. I was out here with my man, Paul, PJF Performance, the one and only. Yes, we had him on earlier. This one was a big thank you to him. I'm at his facility so the mic sounds a lot better. The quality sounds a little better. Big thank you. We also have a big announcement, something that we have been working on. I've been keeping this up my sleeve. I've been teasing a little bit. I know you guys have been asking me about, yo, what's going on? You know, when are you guys going to announce this, uh, this ordeal you have going on? But uh, check out the podcast. We talk about it right at the beginning. And then we dive into more details. Everything from fad diets to caffeine intake to how strong is strong enough and some other, you know, maybe a little BS in between. But I appreciate you guys listening, and I hope you enjoy this one. Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo. So, okay, first of all, you guys got to understand that Max and I are starting the podcast now, but we've been podcasting for the last 24 hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Max made me miss every exit that I could have possibly missed on the way from LA to Orange County because we are so deep in our conversation. We went to the beach this morning. Max had eight cups of coffee. I don't know. I don't know how he's living right now. As you say, you're seeing through walls. I can see through walls. <laughs> uh, we've just been chatting up. I mean, great discussion. So we're just going to carry it on on the podcast. So first of all, if you guys don't know Max, man, you've been living under a rock. This is one of the best sports scientists I know. One of the smartest guys a across a wide range of areas that I know. And first of all, I want you guys to understand this is not just a podcast. This is the biggest announcement of the year. Yes, sir. Max and I have been working on something over the last couple months, and we've been working really, really hard because we want to change the industry. We want to bring more value to trainers and coaches, and we are launching what's called Edge U. And this is an educational platform. This is a coach's circle. This is a way for coaches to connect, and we are going to educate in a way that's never been done before. A hundred percent. And I hate to use the word grinding, but I'll use it loosely here in the fact that we've been grinding on this because this yeah. is something that I'm very passionate about. I know Paul's very passionate about. And by the way, thank you for the great intro. I'll take it. <laughs> I, got, I, can't, I can't overlook that. Um, but we're very passionate about the, the learning process. Um, we don't want learning to be this static environment where you only learn based on someone else's terms. So if you go to school, typically you only learn at the pace at which this class is going in the direction in which the class is going and under the context of what that class is. Well, we know human you know, performance and sports science and the world we live in isn't very siloed, it's all connected. Right. And we want this platform to be dynamic and connected. We want you guys to get a look into how we learn personally. What papers are we currently diving into? What are our thoughts on those papers? What are our opinions? And then having you be a part of that process and some ways that we are going to announce in the future, but there'll be some really exciting ways that we can make it much more dynamic in a fashion that it's not just our thoughts, but input from others. Um, having individuals share their topics, some of their articles, their opinions on how we're going in regards to the learning process of, you know, whatever that topic might be. Right. 
so I'm juiced, man. I'm real. I mean, I'm hundred percent. I Paul gave me a call on this. I swear to God, he gave me a call. I was like, hey, Max, you want my man? I was like, what's up, Paul? He goes, you guys, you want you want to do this? You want to get rolling? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. And I text Paul. I go, dude, I'm getting sick. He's like, what? Why are you getting sick? I'm like, I wrote 40 articles in four days. <laughs> I haven't slept. He's like, well, maybe you should calm down a little bit. I'm like, I'm trying yeah. to get 100 articles made because I'm so juiced about this. Yeah. No, we're, we're so excited. We've both been cranking away at content and we're going to do long form stuff. So we are going to do, Max is going to do webinars. I'm going to do webinars. We're going to come up with webinars together, but we're also going to write articles. We're also going to do shorter videos. We got some really interesting ways to save coaches a lot of time because we've identified, all right, what, why is there this separation between sports science and coaching? And a lot of it, the coaches want the most updated information. They don't have the time to get that information. They don't have the time to read every single study that's coming out. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're trying to save you guys time and get you as smart as possible at the same time. So we're going to do things like research reviews where we do the work for you. We dissect the research and then we give you what we think from that study. So the actual takeaways of how this influences your next session. We're going to do things like book clubs. You may not have time to read entire books, but we're going to have this book club where we encourage you to read along with us each week. Uh, we will then review it and give our takeaways of what we think about that book. So it's a, a way for you guys to stay accountable to reading. But also, if you don't have the time to read, you still get the takeaways from that book. And so we got a ton of ways that we can save you guys a lot of time and um, and take you guys to the next level as trainers. And all that stuff's going to be backlogged too. So if you didn't have the opportunity to read that book while we we're reading it, mm -hmm. well, you can go back to how we took you know that book club through its course, that single book chapter by chapter. So you can pick that book up and then start from chapter one, read your chapter, and then hop in on how we discussed chapter one of that book. Right. So it's not like if you miss the train, it's gone. We want it there to be backlogged too. So if you have interest in a book that we maybe already covered or one that you know we're going to cover in the future possibly and you want to get a head start, whatever it may be, we want to make it accessible. Mm -hmm. So it makes the process, as Paul's saying, a little more efficient and effective on your time schedule. But we're kind of doing some of the, the discussion on the front end to hopefully guide some of that learning process. So yep. it's a, a central hub where you can... Again, I'm pretty nerdy. It make learning fun. Like, very, very nerdy. Not pretty nerdy. I'm very nerdy, a hundred percent. I like learning. I think it's, yeah, it's it's exciting. But we want to make it our opinions, but then allowing you to have the tools to develop your own education or educational justification for what you're doing. Yep. Why am I doing this as a coach? Yep. We provide our insights. Then we provide the raw papers. Go read it. Share your opinion. Let us know what you thought. Yep. You know, we got the book club coming up. We're going to talk about this chapter. Maybe submit some questions that you want to know about. Mm -hmm. Maybe submit an article that you think this is how it should have been discussed. Then we can hop on here and chat about it. Yeah. So oh, a lot sure. of things. Another, uh, another thing that I'm really excited about is the social media review. So oh, yes. look, social media is a great place to learn. There's a lot of great coaches and scientists delivering information, but you guys are wasting a lot of time scrolling through your phone. Uh, we're going to take the best social media posts. So let's say it's for November. We're going to take like five or 10 posts and we're going to really break that down. So what I always say about social media, it's great for horizontals. It's not great for verticals. What that means is you learn a little bit about a ton of topics, right? You see a video, you learn about it for one minute, 
but you don't really know anything about it. And then you just scroll on to the next one. So there's a lot of coaches who know just enough to talk about it, but not enough to actually implement it. And so what we're going to do is dive deeper and go, look, these are the five most beneficial posts that I saw. And then we're going to elaborate. So we're going to show you what they said in the post, but also can we get some more studies to back that or to refute that? And we're going to carry on the conversation. So now you can actually become more of an expert in that topic instead of just knowing a little bit. So that's another way where you're going to take your knowledge to the next level. And it's also going to save you a ton of time. Yeah. And Part of that, we're going to have exclusive interviews with some of these actual coaches that you might be seeing on these Instagram posts. Yep. Right. If we have my boy Vern Griffith, let me get calling you out right now. <laughs> I know he's going to get his ass on here. Um, get him on, talk about how he's using the landmine stuff, but get him on here so we have a detailed, in depth conversation and then referencing some of those techniques that he's using and the videos that he's using, mm -hmm. but the exclusive interviews and content that we'll have. But that's driven from an educational standpoint. It's not just come on here and chop it up. Yeah, we'll no, talk no. to them. I want to learn from them. So you, I'm selfish. I want to learn. Paul knows that. All I do all day is read books. I'm a weirdo. Whatever. But I want to get this guy on here, get the interview in, and pick his brain so we actually dive into the details. And then breaking that talk down so Paul and I can discuss our opinions on it, some of the research on it, and really make it deeply interconnected in a way that it normally really isn't. Normally get mm -hmm. that superficial. Let's hear a guy one time. I don't see him again. He talks for an hour and a half. Oh, it's fun to listen to. But let's break down that conversation. Let's yeah. hear what he's saying. And then really, you know, not in a, let's challenge it in a good way that we're trying to, I'm trying to learn. I want to hear his thought process so you guys can learn from that too. Right. Oh, exactly. And we have a lot of, uh, a lot of people lined up, a lot of experts in the field, and it's, it's going to be a wide range. So we're not talking about just strength and conditioning and not just sports science. We're also talking about nutritionists and sleep experts. And we're going to get a wide range where if you're just into general fitness, you can benefit, right? If you're just a personal trainer, you don't even train athletes, you're going to benefit. Uh, no matter who you are, we think that you're going to really be able to benefit from this platform. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And, and guys remember like a lot of people asked and Max and I were talking about this earlier. We get so many questions of like, Hey, what degree should I get? What college should I go to? What college did you go to, to get this information? Guess what? It doesn't matter. I don't care where you go to college. There's a lot of people out there that don't even go to college. Now I recommend it if you can, but where the real information comes from is the self-study and from learning from other experts in the field. That's where I got most of my knowledge, is just finding out, okay, who is already crushing it in the industry? Who's getting good results? Let me go to them, let me buy their books, let me see if I can sit down and talk with them and, and get them coffee, buy them lunch. That's where the real learning comes from. And so Max and I are gonna be able to really deliver that by bringing these experts to you and also giving you all 100% transparent thoughts coming from us. No, that hits a really personal chord with me too. So I my background is um, I thought I was gonna play D1 hoops I didn't give a shit about school. Every high school class, I took my textbooks, put them under my bed so I knew where to return them. Every time I got a syllabus, I did the math on it to figure out if I got 70% of all my homework, which is turning it in and partial credit, which means attempting to do it, and got 50% in all my tests, I'd still get a B- minus in the class if I had participation. I might get a, my extra credit to get to B, which gives me a 3-0. Mm -hmm. So I didn't care about learning. I care about a grade. Mm -hmm. I did that through college, too. I actually got... Lucky enough, I got two degrees in college, but I wasn't a good student. I had a 2-2 my first year of college, almost got removed from the academic, um, not academic scholarship, the scholarship I had uh, wasn't for athletics. It was for um, 
you know, semantics. Being out of state, family mm-hmm. went there, blah, blah, blah. I almost got that scholarship and financial aid removed because I didn't really give a crap about school. I was really good at Mario Kart Double Dash. Anyone <laughs> who wants to see me Mario Kart Double Dash, I will tear you a new one. That's a challenge. Oh, my gosh. I am. Actually, I'm not the best. My buddy, my roommate, is the GOAT. Unbelievable. I've never played a dude like so you're it. like a Scotty Pippen, and he's the MJ. Oh, 100%. It's fair. I don't really take second place out. Oh, he, that dude is an animal. <laughs> but I, back to the story, I didn't give a crap about school. And then um, I realized I was never going to play overseas. It was my senior year, and I was, oh, my God, what am I going to do with my life? Um, I didn't really enjoy athletic training as a profession on the field. I really enjoy learning. It was my cup of tea. Some people love it. It wasn't mine. I like strength conditioning, didn't really know enough about it, but I started to enjoy some of the science because the last year that I was in school, we had to do a project where we broke down some research papers. I never read a research paper my entire life. And a lot of it stemmed from me, okay, why am I so on athletic? I wish I was more athletic. So it kind of naturally segued into performance research. I ended up getting a wonderful, uh, I don't know how, I, Iowa State, great financial aid as a grad student. I wanted to stay in Iowa because my current fiance, who was my girlfriend at the time, was there. So I was at Iowa State, and I got there, and they go, oh, you know, welcome to Iowa State's grad school. Uh, see you later. Um, go, have, go have fun in class. Mm-hmm. And there was, like, nothing else to do, and then I didn't really realize it was a huge self-learning experiment um, because in order to pass, you've got, you got to learn. you got to find a way. Teachers aren't really always there to help you. They're there to guide you. Right. And so I went into the library and found this like treasure trove of all these old books. There's hundreds of these texts on sports science. And I was two and a half hours from my fiance. So I never saw her. I didn't have any friends who went to Iowa State. I lived with my two cousins who I loved to death, but they worked. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? I can only play so many hoops. So I got all these books and just read them nonstop. Because the year before, I'd been at University of Iowa on an internship under Coach Doyle, arguably one of the best strength and conditioning coaches in all of you know college football, of collegiate athletics and I was so embarrassed at how little I knew I was so ashamed of myself because I thought I knew a lot oh I had two degrees I'm a strength conditioning coach I'm an athletic trainer oh blah 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 and I went there and was put to shame on what I knew Mm -hmm. and it was truly disheartening I felt so I never felt so embarrassed my entire life other than being extremely out of shape one year when I was in eighth grade for basketball different topic but same feeling you had that level of shame I like I let myself down now I got to Iowa State and I said, one thing I can do is I can read. I don't always have the opportunity for all the experience, but I can put the time in to read and learn on my own. And I'm not going to let another opportunity pass me by because I wasn't prepared enough. Right. And I knew there were books in front of me. I knew I could read. And I found a great internship with, um, gosh, it was a wonderful guy, Josh Borgar, Coach Bo. Huge mentor in my life for that standpoint. He really motivated and encouraged me to continue to pursue my uh you know, areas of interest in regards to sports science and really uh, help foster that. But he told me, you just got to learn. Like, you don't get the chance to have an internship. Not everyone gets to have an internship. Not everyone gets to have great opportunities to work with great athletes or great coaches. But there are thousands of free books and articles online Mm -hmm. that anyone can do. Right. And so you might not get the opportunity now, but if you get faced with the opportunity, you better show yourself to that individual who you're showcasing yourself to. You're not just 2X better, you're 4X better Mm -hmm. because you've put in the work. And that's where this stems from. I went through that experience. I learned this information of, you know, through self-trial and error, a lot of reading, a lot of struggle trying to interpret results, a lot of times thinking I knew a lot, a lot of times thinking I knew nothing, right. and sometimes somewhere in between. And now this is the opportunity where I want to get back to you and show you, look, I have been through, I have three degrees. I have an athletic training certified. I'm a, a strength, certified strength coach, as well as my second degree was think of strength conditioning technically at Co. I'm a master's in exercise physiology. 
And none of that really was that meaningful outside of what I learned on my own. Yeah. All of that set the base. And so exactly. I wanted this program to be a means to express to you that you can, you can learn. You're allowed to learn. No one's going to hold you back. It's on your own time. Right. Let me show you what we did and what have helped me to get to where I am and get, now give you the opportunity in a more structured manner so you're not diving through this weird like floor two and a half, it was called at Iowa State. It was like in between a stairwell. It was this weird, smelly room, all these books. You don't have to dive through that. I did it already. Yeah. I want to show, show you what I'm reading now so mm -hmm. you guys can just find it because the more I interact with other people, the one biggest regret I had was I never had someone to learn with. It was mm -hmm. always myself. Yep. Coach Bo was great. He really helped me, but he wasn't my roommate. He was a SNC coach. I mm -hmm. saw him you know, three times a week. I wanted someone there who I could learn with bounce ideas off of and then help grow together because your opinions are just as important as mine. For sure. For sure. Like all the time. I mean, even when we chat, like I'll read something and normally I would take something and I would go with it. But sometimes like I'll shoot you a text and you'll be like, yeah, but what about this? And what about this research study? And then I completely change my opinion on it. It's like just having somebody to go back and forth with can completely change your learning experience, take you to a whole new level. And so this is like something that you're going to hear from every top expert when you ask them how they got there they're not going to reference their degree and they're not going to reference their certifications they're going to say dude i put in the work on my own books conferences sitting down with other experts and so that's what we want to bring to you guys and the beautiful thing is this is very affordable right this is going to yes. be dollar a day less than a dollar a day i mean i went into 30 dollars of college debt and i took no i mean it, it was great for a base but I didn't take away that much to where that would have just made me a good trainer. Actually, when I was 19 or 20 years old, when I was a personal trainer, I was at LA Fitness making $6 a session. And uh, I had people from ASU with like a master's in kinesiology who would come to me for training. I didn't even have my bachelor's degree yet. And I'm like, you have a master's? And they're like, yeah, but I have no idea how to train. Like I, I, I know some stuff about the body, but they didn't teach me how to train. And so it, it, what, what I'm trying to portray is like it all happens in self-study. So we want to be able to apply, uh, give you guys these resources and do it if, uh, in a very affordable fashion where you don't have to go $60,000, $70,000 in debt to get the elite information. It's like growing a plant, right? You can have um, the best soil in the world, but you don't have a seed, it won't grow. Mm -hmm. And so I can't promise you or anyone else that does anything in life, whether that seed's going to grow, but I can give you sunshine and I can give you a good soil right? and give you all the resources. All you got to do is apply the water. Yep. All right. And so that's how this wants to work. We want to be able to, I don't want you diving through books. What should I try? I understand it's really hard to get started. You know why it's hard to get started? Because it's really freaking confusing. Like the body, what do I get started? Do I get started the nervous system, the muscular system? Do I learn about bones? Do I learn about you know uh, endocrine system? Yeah, I, I get it. You know why it's tough to learn? Because all of them are equally important. Mm -hmm. So it's just starting somewhere, and we yeah. want to provide. If you don't know where to start, or you want to continue to go, let's use this platform. Because I'm gonna, I read all the time. I read lots of books, <laughs> and I'll put that as a very uh, understatement. And I want to be able to share that process so you don't have to feel like you have to now go and get rich soil. Let me provide yeah. the soil. Yeah. And Max is more important now than ever. And because like what we were talking about in the car last night, there's a lot of experts out there, 
experts out there that know the science words. And so they know just enough to sound smart and trick you. And so you got a lot of even good professionals, but young professionals, you got college kids who are tricked by them and they're going down the wrong path and they're studying the wrong things because it's tough to know who actually knows their stuff now on social media. And so we want to be like, look, these are the books that you should be reading. These are the the, the thought processes that you, you guys should be thinking um, and, and being able to separate the BS from the real stuff uh, because like now more than ever, you see a lot of stuff that sounds good, but it's putting you down the wrong path in the education system. We want to not tell you what to do. We want to learn with you. Yeah. Right. That's the big difference. I'm not going to sit here on a pedestal and pretend I know everything. That's a total lie. I, I, I don't know everything. I actually don't know that much compared to all the things you can learn. I want to learn. I think I've done a pretty good job learning about other stuff in the past. And we want to share with you how you can then educate yourself in this process. Yep. So as opposed to this being a platform, we're going to sit here and tell you, tell you what to do. We'll tell you what we think we would do. And right. the keyword is what we think. Because right. I want you to think too. I want you to have your own educated justification for what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's this platform is to empower you so you have the ability to say, you know what? I don't agree with Max and Paul, but here's why. And that's awesome because if I told all my, I taught at Iowa State for two and a half years as a GA slash TA. And I told the first day to all my students, don't believe me. Don't believe a single word I say, but you have to prove me wrong. Yeah. So if you don't believe me, but you go and read all the literature and you find out I'm right, guess what? You learned a very thorough understanding of why I said what I said. And guess what's even better? If you prove me wrong, you have a very strong educated justification for why you proved me wrong. Because if you don't believe me, then it's going to force yourself, okay, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to say that that's not right, and I'm going to prove it otherwise. That means you have to put the effort to prove it as opposed to just accepting it. If you just accept it, anyone's going to push your boat either way. Mm-hmm. But if you have to be willing to take that, that ownership of it, and we're here to provide you with that platform. Exactly. No, I'm so excited. And and we're not only going to talk about the specifics of training, of course, like we're going to dive into the business side of things. You guys know that I'm pretty passionate about that. I, re- I released a webinar and it kind of blew up. And I, in the webinar, I mentioned, hey, I'm going to come out with part two on business success. I'm going to dive into social media success, all this stuff. And it, I got such a good response that I was like, eh, maybe I shouldn't just do a webinar. Maybe I should do an entire platform. And so the past couple of years, I've been going back and forth on like, how can I release this? Because a lot of you guys know anything that I'm going to be involved with, like I need it to be really good. I'm not just going to put something out. And so I'm like, what can I do? Like, how can I make this the best in the world, the best possible educational platform for everybody to grow with and change the industry? And I'm like, man, Max, I, I need Max on my <laughs> oh, side. I appreciate man. that. I, like you're the first person I thought of. I'm like, man, he knows so much on such a wide variety of topics. He puts in the work. He studies constantly. He can communicate it. Because that's the thing. A lot of sports scientists who are super smart, they can't actually communicate it and teach. They just want to show how smart they are. But uh, Max does a good job of, of being extremely smart, but then also actually teaching you what you need to know. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm so excited for this. I really feel like this can be a game changer in the industry. And like what we were talking about last night, we were just born. The industry was just born. Even when I was coming into the industry, 
it was like, I wonder if trainers can make a good full-time living. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Like I didn't know anybody who was like a basketball specific trainer making uh, a ton of money or any like any niche within strength and conditioning that were making a lot of money outside of like big college programs. And now you see a bunch of guys just crushing it. And it's just now being born, mm -hmm. man. We're 10 years into people crushing it. So uh, I, I feel like this is just now being born and the industry is only going to continue to rise. So you want to be at the forefront and you need the best information and you need that good coaches circle so that we can all network and communicate with each other and grow together. And we're going to have some wild cards in here too. We're going to have people who uh, I'm pretty excited to get on design thinking specialists, people who are in the business world, yeah. people who have to organize large companies because you can learn from that. And again, this yep. is a platform in which you learn from. It's about mastering your craft. Every detail that affects your craft, we're going to try to get you to master. Man, we'll get Calvin on the podcast and we'll yes, talk sir. about how he creates my social media content that goes viral. He's the man that makes it happen. We're, we'll get Calvin on here and, and see what he has to say about, about making uh, viral posts and, and stuff outside of just training. So I, I'm super excited for it. Oh, I am juiced. This is something I've been looking forward to. It's something I was doing um, the groundwork for for about a year. And uh, Paul gave me a holler and said, absolutely, let's make it happen. It's going to be big time. Edge you. Education. You're going to get an edge education. You like that wordplay? That's Max's. I'm just taking credit for it. <laughs> it is the edge because it is not just the edge of what's coming out. It's giving you an edge because we're laying a lot of we're, – we're serving softball lobs up. Yeah. We're, uh, we're giving you things to read. Right. And it's your education. Mm -hmm. Right. It is about you and how you learn. It's your edge. Yep. And so that's the idea of the platform and why it's not just – we're going to talk about muscle physiology and nutrition. No, you're getting an edge in all aspects because business life, it's not one dimensional, right? It's multifactorial. You got to be able to deal with a lot of things at once. Big facts, big, big, big facts. So I'm not going to announce an exact date yet because we're waiting on a few things, but just know in the next couple of weeks, we're probably going to be launching um, so make sure that you guys start like kind of looking out for our social media page. We are creating a separate Instagram page that I'll be announcing and you guys can follow along there. We're going to do, you know, infographics and post Lots some of, of our, some content. of our little research reviews and stuff like that. So just know that we are going to continue to give out a ton of good free content, but you can only go so far with an Instagram post, right? That's the, what I want people to understand is like when you follow my Instagram page, I give out a lot of information. Max gives out a lot of information, but it's still just the tip of the iceberg, right? For some people, they look at that and they go, oh, that's the whole thing. You can only do so much in a one-minute Instagram post. Yeah, exactly. Even IGTV, 10 no, minutes, whatever. It's not enough, not it's enough. It's not enough. Like these are things that we could be writing a 200-page book on. So 100%. to think that you're getting everything out of a one-minute Instagram post. So anyways, my point is we're going to continue to give out good free information, but this is where we're really going to dive into the details is on EDU. Exactly. And we got a great team. Strength of Speed, Drake B. Hey. Hey. We got Drake on our side. Not Drizzy Drake, but we got the second best Drake that we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's probably better. Not champagne. He's probably better at sports science, though. One-on-one, -on -one, Drake versus Drake. Ooh. Ooh. Let's set that Around up. that neighborhood. Let's set that up. Drizzy Champagne, where you at? Ooh. Oh, my gosh. It's going down. I would say Drake's last name, but I always call him different last names. I actually can't say it. it Drake B. 
Drake B, Berbere. I always called him Bear Bear because I thought so it was the first time. <laughs> so the Bear, but that's not his name. It's Strength to Speed. Yeah. My dude. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be Good part stuff. of this. So he puts out some great of, works. A lot of brains, a lot of people who've applied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of normal dudes at the end of the day. People a lot of normal like, dudes with insane passion for the field. And that's absolutely. where it comes from. Like I always tell people, I'm not naturally very smart. Actually, I'm probably on the dumb side of the spectrum. <laughs> But I'm not like, going to comment after seeing him <laughs> drive here. Yeah, that was, was bad. Elon, was bad. help us out, my man. <laughs> Those maps. On the, Elon the, was running our maps himself. I swear he was running it from his phone, and he was he was drunk. Tesla so, Mobile a little late. Yeah. No, anyways, I'm just extremely passionate about the field, and so I'm willing to sit down for 10 hours straight and read. So like, we're just super, super passionate about this stuff, and so we're very normal guys. We're very down-to-earth. We're not pretentious in any way. Uh, no amount of success will make us that way. We are just normal guys with a big passion, and we just want to teach people. And a hunger for coffee. Man, if you want to come this make guy, us happy, man. you can stop by, bring some coffee, this guy. some oat milk. We're ready to roll. Man, I overdosed already. I only had two cups. I'm about, not big. I was trying to hang with you. You're at six? I don't know. I'm at enough. five or six. I got a little more body weight, though. Isn't that how it works? Is that per kilogram? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, I mean, you could probably tell me better. We, we actually facts. just we actually just had this conversation about uh, caffeine. Like, is this a performance enhancer? Does this help you? Did you, you drink a lot of coffee? Okay, well, two, one step back. Did you have you read some of like the RDAs on it or like uh, recommended dosages for performance? No. If like you did the math on it, I don't want to speak out of turn. I think it's like I would end up taking like 800 milligrams at my body weight of caffeine. If you look at um, statistical outcomes for power performance because x amount per body weight mm-hmm. and me being 235 i remember doing the math it was like 800 milligrams which is like it's what like you're eight, on right now like that's, what you're, that's what you're on it's my norm <laughs> it's my baseline <laughs> that's yeah that's crazy yeah it was a is uh it was the international the ioc paper is it that they're called the international statements on nutrition mm-hmm. i don't know what the name is the paper isn paper is some people would People with nutrition degrees probably know better than me. But it's something like that where it's it tells you the outline of how much uh, caffeine you should take for your performance enhancing. And, and a lot of the studies look at, you know, 300 milligrams, 250. But I remember reading it. It was a spectrum, by the way. It wasn't just like only this. It was like yeah. blank to blank. And my upper end would be like 800 milligrams. I'm like, oh, good. I got I got a little room to work with. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Bring crazy. that second and third cup I've already had. Yeah. But sensitivity has to play a huge role, right? So like if you're oh, 800, but you're 800 every day, then that 800 doesn't mean much. But if you go off for a week and then you get 800, that's huge. I also think it's how you take it too. I don't have, I haven't read any of that, um, but I'm very, from anecdotal experience, personal. So take that with a grain of salt. If I drink all my coffee in the morning, I do much better than if I were to space all those same cups out throughout the day. Hmm. I don't know if the initial spike when I wake up is more natural with my rhythmic spike I have, my circadian rhythm right. that I have when I wake up, and then I don't interrupt it with coffee throughout the day. I don't know if it's because when I take coffee, the half-life wears out, and I just fall asleep at a normal time because we don't have the uh, the buildup, which is going to cause you know the fatigue of adenosine blockers. Right, We have an adenosine antagonist, so when you drink coffee, it blocks the buildup of adenosine, and then adenosine makes you sleepy so if you have high amounts of adenosine like from atp breakdown then you get tired it's uh part of um there's a word for i'm blank it's like uh sleep weight sleep burden feeling sleepy essentially Mm -hmm. um 
but if you have coffee, it blocks that receptor. And mm. so if I have it all in the morning, well, maybe, I don't know, I don't have the same levels of fatigue that I had later in the day. It's not disrupting my pattern. For myself, if I drink it all in the morning, I feel great throughout the day. If I drink it sporadically throughout the day, same amount of caffeine, I feel way worse. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so actually this morning... I got up. I went for my normal one cup of coffee. We both woke up too early because we were so excited about creating content. We were supposed to wake up at like 8.30 and we both woke up at like 6. But uh, anyways, I, I got up, had my normal cup of coffee and you bought me, you brought me a nice little cocktail of pills. Explain what you made me take this morning. <laughs> I, didn't, I made him take magnesium. He, you make he, it sound... forced, he forced this on me. He, he brought made, me a cocktail of pills. Yeah, you make it sound... And last night, he made me watch Alien Documentaries. <laughs> it's 100% true. We did watch a great <laughs> Alien Documentary. This guy is going to change me. No, I had uh, I take magnesium. Um, and a lot of the recommended daily allowance for a magnesium is 420 milligrams for a male, uh, assuming that's normal. And we normally... I, I think it's about... Uh, 80% of people are deficient. Don't quote me these numbers. There's actually a good paper on it that they did a population-wide survey on deficiencies. The most common deficiency, one of the major common deficiencies was magnesium. Uh, magnesium, MG, ATP is the you know cofactor to ATP. It's bound with it. Um, magnesium plays an important role in many different aspects of life, whether it's glucose utilization. Um, and that affects, again, with uh, some people use it for sleep in the brain, um, stress reduction, and Essentially, it has a role in many different biochemical pathways, is the simple mm -hmm. way of putting it. Right. And it's most commonly present, I believe, in spinach and almonds. I remember I had like a, a little Fitbit machine, and it told me I was, in, I was restless that night, so it was, eat more almonds. I'm like, how many almonds do you eat to get enough magnesium? <laughs> That's the recommendation. Eat more almonds before yeah. bed. I'm like, why can't you just say take magnesium, dude? Like, yeah. But you got to be careful what kind you take. Um, certain kinds of magnesium make you poop because they don't absorb very well. And that's mm. why they make you poop. Mm. Um, I believe it's oxide or citrate. One of the two. I'm pretty sure it's oxide. Um, so if you're reading for like a, a magnesium, you look at the sleep for sleep, make sure you're getting the right one. Biglycinate is uh, what they argue and say is the most easily digestible and absorbed into the uh, blood and utilized by cells. Mm -hmm. So again, that's a great example of how, oh, you know, let's take a supplement, quote unquote, magnesium. Well, if you don't know the details of what you're taking, you might be taking the one that makes you shit. Yeah. And that's not the goal of this. Right. Um, people use that, like getting ready for like a colonoscopy. I'm pretty sure they pound a bunch of magnesium. And again, I think that's the clean out house kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to note, like, I don't think Max is saying like, you should always take a supplement. You shouldn't try to get this through food. But what he's saying is like, how much almonds and spinach do you really eat? Like, let's be realistic. I mean, I don't know many people that eat enough to get enough magnesium through those foods, right? Yeah, you know, that's with anything. A supplement is there to augment your current dietary intake. It's supposed to help you. It's supposed to, supposed to be a beam in the infrastructure of the house. It's not supposed to be the whole house. Mm -hmm. um, so when I talk about a supplement or something that I might take, I had blood work done. I have a specific reason why I take, say, a B vitamin or L-carnitine. There is a reason behind it. Now, it's to augment myself because maybe through my diet, I'm not getting these nutrients. Maybe I don't eat enough magnesium-rich foods. And so in order to get to where I want to be biochemically, we can say, I want to take a supplement that's going to help get me there, but not be the only thing that gets me there. For example, if I'm not getting enough protein, well, you eat protein powder with it. You have, okay, it's easier. I don't need to cook a food. I can get it quick and digestible. Mm -hmm. But that protein powder doesn't replace the other 120 grams of protein you eat in the day. Right. It is to augment maybe that last 20 grams that you got to take 
you take it after a workout because you're driving your car because you're running somewhere else. Mm-hmm. On that same side, if you were to replace that 25 grams, 20 grams with a chicken breast, no one's saying that's any different. It's just a supplement to help you. Right. To make uh, additional changes to get you to a spot that you are otherwise not capable or not at currently with the current intake of food. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a huge believer in getting your specific blood work done because it's tough to just say, hey, you need this for sure. Every human needs it. Well, depends. Like, what are you lacking in? So, like, I haven't got a blood test done. And so uh, this morning, Max yelled at me. I actually thought he was going to fight me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, no, I mean, that's that's something that, that I need to get on. Um, I've been encouraging our players, but I haven't personally done it myself. If you have the money, if you have the resources to get a blood test, that might be one of the best investments that you can do, right? Getting the right blood test, too. And so what I mean by that is there's a lot of posh blood tests that are cool and edgy that you can get that might not yield that much of a benefit because you don't know what to do with it. You want to be able to with it be working with a provider, whether it's a registered dietitian or a doc, that understands how to interpret the blood work and gives you a plan of action. I see a lot of people who go, oh, I'm going to go get blood work, and they might do, um, let's say, uh, a certain type of testing, whether it's IgG, which is a controversial um, immunoglobulin test, which measures certain protein levels in the blood to see if you're sensitive to a food. Now, if you were to just take that test, the research is very iffy on it. And so it might tell you that you are uh, having sensitivities to swordfish. You might say, well, I haven't had a swordfish before. Um, and But the point of it is some people might use that inappropriately and say, I need to eliminate all these foods. As opposed to another practitioner might say, oh, you have generally a high level of IgGs in your blood. A lot of these large proteins are seeping actually into the bloodstream. We, as a practitioner, not me, but I'm assuming that practitioner role, might say you have leaky gut and you might have malabsorption or some of the foods, whatever, and you might need to go to a specific protocol of eliminating certain foods for a temporary period of time under certain supplementation, whether that's glutamine or other areas of interest, to allow for repair of that gut wall under the hypothesis that if you do that, the amount of IgGs, these free proteins floating around the blood, will be reduced because that gut wall will be repaired. Mm-hmm. So it's not, oh, I'm just going to do something to make the assumption. Because remember, when you do anything in the anything at all in life, basically, but especially blood work is very easy to misinterpret. I don't interpret blood work. Let me get that disclaimer out right now. I don't interpret it. I've gotten some. I work with a doctor to get my own blood work done. This is personal experience. Um, but I could see how it would be very difficult for someone to get it and just say, oh, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Under not knowing how that blood work was done and how mm-hmm. it could be interpreted otherwise if you had a doc doing it. Right. So things like micronutrient testing are common. Um, obviously, getting your hormones tested. If you want more specific metabolic pathways of your hormones and what areas maybe that things might be going a little more awry, like a Dutch test, you can do serum testing, which is of your blood. You can do saliva testing or you can do urine testing. Urine testing is normally metabolite testing. Hormone testing of the blood is typically done to actually measure concentration levels within the blood. Again, it's not actually in the muscle, but it's in the blood and maybe certain bound factors in there. And saliva can be used as like immediate or uh, temporal analysis. So you can look at what's not being bound and what's being excreted through saliva. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me stop you there. It's 90% of people that just heard there like, whoa, that's really interesting. Oh, but my insurance does not cover blood work. So kind of. Uh, I mean, you go to a doctor, you can, most people have blood work from a doc. You can go get your hormones tested. You can go get your triglycerides and LDL and HDL tested. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, if your insurance will cover certain amounts uh, uh, based on what the doctor deems appropriate. So I know many people who might go in for uh, a checkup and it's deemed appropriate for a medical reason that they need to have certain blood work done mm. in order to make sure that they are getting provided the best medical care that the doctor deems appropriate. Yeah. So the posh testing is a lot of out-of-pocket stuff because mm. sometimes the medical field, like for example, they don't recognize a need for me to get my micronutrients tested. They said there's no science behind understanding your micronutrient levels. So therefore, our insurance won't cover it. You got to pay your, you know, whatever, hundred bucks for it. And I was like, well, that's kind of no, no science to look at my micronutrient levels. Yeah. What do you think the first thing that goes wrong? Right. It's uh, it's a it's a micro to macro outcome the way our body works. So right. the way your body works, think about it like this: our body lives in this environment that is the world, and we get exposed to lots of things. You know, whether it's air pollution, whether it's exercise, or an angry, um, you know, interaction on the road with person who cut you off we have all these things we're exposed to then our body receives that stress and then these cellular changes occur you might have hormones secreted that mobilize certain like blood glucose to get you ready to take action to whatever's going to happen you have a stress you have a body's response to that stress now if we have that stress imposed upon us either through means of something occurring like an interaction with someone or by means of not providing it enough. So we're stressing it by not giving it enough nutrients. It has to find ways to compensate. Mm -hmm. Maybe something in a feedback loop gets thrown off because this repetitive exposure changes our micro level and then becomes and manifests itself at a macro level in terms of illness. A great example is scurvy. So scurvy is the deficiency in vitamin C. And it happened when people were on boats and they go out in the ocean, they didn't bring any oranges or fruit, and they got scurvy. But the symptoms and the outcome of scurvy was different for many different people. And it had different manifestations, even though it was essentially the same root cause. Mm -hmm. At least that's the debate about it. And so we can't just look at a symptom because a symptom is a byproduct of something. Right. Getting jacked and big biceps is probably a byproduct of lifting weights, doing bicep curls, and eat enough protein and enough nutrients to build muscle fibers. You build little muscle fiber. You don't build muscle fiber. You don't not hyperplasia. You know mm -hmm. hypertrophy. Grow them. Yeah. And um, muscle fibers grow a little bit every time. And they keep growing and growing and growing. And eventually, they grow enough that you can see a physical change in the mirror. Mm -hmm. But just because the physical change in the mirror occurred doesn't mean that six weeks ago, when you didn't see that, that these fibers weren't growing. Right. It was just such at a micro level that you couldn't measure the adaptation. Right. And so that's the same way we look at everything in the body. So if I want to get certain levels of you know, my blood work, my nutrients done, well, maybe I'm missing certain nutrients because of my diet. And missing these nutrients might manifest itself in other you know, suboptimal outcomes in the body that might lead to me being sick, mm -hmm. a slight reduction in the immune system. So to say that your micronutrients aren't important and understanding those levels Okay, well, it's very complex, so you're never going to draw a one-to-one -one line, if right. that makes sense. Right. No, for sure. Okay, so I'm thinking as a YouTube commenter right now. I'm thinking of yeah. what, what, what everybody is going to say. So, okay, uh, well, I'm not as mean as a YouTube commenter. <laughs> Let me say, there's some keyboard warriors out there. No, that's fine. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I'm thinking of like what kind of questions do they have based on that? A lot of them are going to say, well, dude, for whatever reason, 
I can't get my blood tested. Is there anything that's like for sure that I should be taking based on studies of just what humans are deficient for? Let's say you're a high school basketball player. You're super active. You're sweating a lot. You're grinding in the weight room. You're eating a pretty balanced diet. Is there anything that you think is a no brainer that they should take? Wow. Um, which is tough. That's it's a, a t- very blanket. But first off, you can I can't make that generalization. Let's just yeah. say that right now. Yeah. And I'm not going to be held accountable. So all disclaimers provided. Oh, course, I'm not a nutrition. Yeah, yeah, blah blah yeah. blah. I'm not a nutritionist. Isn't medical advice. Um, but I see obviously benefits in protein. Right. Let's just get that out of the way right now. A lot of people might be suboptimal in protein, and I'll kind of break down why each category as we go through it. So mm-hmm. protein is very important because it doesn't just build muscle; it plays a role in neurotransmitter development. That's and, what a lot of people don't understand. And enzyme development. What do, you, like, what do you mean by that? So it, when a neurotransmitter is synthesized, it is you know a protein that leads to that, an amino acid. So you eat a big protein meal, or you said very macro, big picture protein. They're amino acids, which are um, you know the, the, the micro version, we'll say, of the protein, what the protein's made up of. And yep. then um, you consume it, and those amino acids, they'll go signal certain things, like leucine, but they say is the motivator to build muscle. It kind of signals build muscle, but you need the other proteins there to actually, you know, have the infrastructure be built. Mm-hmm. And things like tyrosine are precursors to other neurotransmitters in the brain. And they have uh, roles in which they might be um, needed outside of just muscle protein synthesis. So to not bore you with detailed biochemistry, proteins are kind of like the general builders. Mm-hmm. But that includes not just your muscles, but your tendons, your neurotransmitters, your enzymes, and they all play a role in biological pathways. And so if you're not eating enough protein to repair muscle, well, what's happening elsewhere too, possibly? Right. Um, and obviously, we want to have enough to be repairing what we need to have. So yeah. protein's important. And I've, I've, I've read a study, I think, recently that suggested, I think it was... 0.72 grams of protein per pound of body weight can go towards muscle building. But they also said in that study, like there's other functions. So more protein than that might actually be beneficial. Yeah. It depends on your goal. That's actually something um, I've talked about with a good friend, you know, Will the Wallace, my man. Oh on, yeah. I've seen him on Instagram. Yeah, I know he's Will's a good dude and yeah. we hope to have him on here. Well, we'll get him on edge. You. Get my man, Will. I love that dude. Um, I pepper him with all this stuff. And I was talking to him about the concept of, you know, all these protein studies are looked so heavily at muscle protein synthesis. But maybe, you know, protein's used elsewhere too. Mm-hmm. And certain amino acids are used elsewhere. Tyrosine, phenylalanine are used for like dopamine precursors. Okay, well, we have other neurotransmitters outside of that, like glutamate, glutamate, glutamate. I can't even say it right now. Glutamate. Well, I apologize. Don't make fun of me for that. <laughs> um, all right, we have proteins and aminos being used for other means. Mm-hmm. And to think about it and only in terms of protein synthesis, well, obviously there's difficulty in measuring some of these neurotransmitter synthesis and metabolites that we're measuring um, that you can measure. I shouldn't say we, I'm not. But we can actually maybe make the assumption. Again, this is my assumption. It's not right, not you know, written in stone. But maybe it's used elsewhere too. So if we're only getting back enough to build protein. Maybe we're not doing X, Y, and Z. Or maybe protein's the last thing that occurs. So maybe you need to have enough you know, sorry, muscle protein synthesis, I should say. Maybe you have protein. That protein is allocated initially to the key core functioning things like neurotransmitters because without those, you can't function. Mm-hmm. And then once you've met the sufficient amount there, maybe it's then allocated to protein synthesis because we know that if you don't eat 
protein and you go on fasting, your body will start to break down its own protein and so mm -hmm. utilize those amino acids elsewhere. Yep. And so your body has a very good way of making sure it stays alive. And what it deems in a hierarchical manner, what's most important to least important, you might be able to argue that muscle protein synthesis might be the least important thing from a survival standpoint because mm -hmm. assuming a caloric excess and having enough protein for you to build muscle. Right. So you could argue that maybe these neurotransmitters are taken care of first, and then we need to have enough to have enough muscle protein synthesis. But then you can also argue all these other nutritional factors go into it as well. If we don't have enough glucose, right? Well, maybe we don't have enough muscle glycogen. And so now we have to divert some of those proteins as a means of energy utilization. Even though they're very poor at it, they can still be used as such. Like leucine can be used as a... You know, glutamate, I can't say the word, glutamate, glutamine, I should look it up before this, I'm gonna feel like an idiot, uh, can be used as for a, a gluconeogenic precursor, so building muscle, glu uh, well, gluconeogenesis goes to the liver and releases, you know, mm -hmm. glucose, so on yep. and so forth. So you have these buckets, you have your protein, which is kind of your builder. Then you have your carbs, which is typically your energy provider. There's not many uses outside of carbs, outside of energy. Mm -hmm. And then you have your fats, which are utilized for other areas as well like cell wall development. Um, uh, I mean, tons of it. I don't even get into it, but it can also be utilized, utilized for energy as well. But maybe you can look at it and say, well, if I'm not getting enough carbs, I'm going to take some of that fat and divert it to energy. Now, is that best and most optimal for performance? Maybe not. Maybe we want to make sure we have enough carbs so we're not taking that fat stores that utilize for cell walls and you know, uh, membrane integrity and using it for energy. We're utilizing it for what it needs to be utilized for. Mm-hmm. And so you can think about this triad of protein and carbs and fats as this dynamic interaction of three different variables that are put together to allow the body to work the best it can. And the minute we take something away from it, we take away protein, we take away you know carbs, we take away fats, yeah. the other guy's got to compensate for it. We're going to dive a lot deeper on that topic on EDGE. It's just like educating on exactly what are all of the roles of protein, all of the roles of fat, all of the roles of carbohydrates, because if people actually understood the roles, they wouldn't restrict one of those nutrients. They wouldn't be like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to eat protein and fats. That's it. You'd be like, well, you might want to have some carbohydrates if you want to fuel a certain type of activity level. Oh, well, okay, cool. Then I'll just, uh, I'll just do carbohydrates and protein. Well, how's your hormones now? Like there's always something that is being taken away when you strip away a nutrient. Mm -hmm. So all these fad diets, it's, it comes from a lack of understanding of the role of each macronutrient and why we have to have all of them and why we have to have them in a certain balance. So I'm going to say this as a general statement, but most fat diets come from a conceptually sound scientific background under context. So for example, ketogenic diets were popularized to help with epilepsy. They were not initially popularized to help you be the best basketball player. Mm -hmm. What happens is you might have good results in a specific research model, whether that's an animal model or human model or two different ways you can look at research and making sure you draw the right conclusions or at least interpretations from. But then that model deems success and someone on the outside goes, hey, look, that's pretty cool. Well, you know what's even better? We can make money on this. Mm. So they take that and they take the results of it and they might cherry pick certain areas. And this happens for a wide variety of different kind of fad diets. Yep. And they say, look how great this is, period. But they forget to provide the context <laughs> under what it was great for. Because the for. context isn't interesting for the masses. No. If you're making a documentary, 
you got to support that documentary with the evidence that supports that. It, like, it is, not, it is not a good documentary. Well, for us it would be, but for the general population, it's not a good documentary when you say, oh, this works really well, but this other study actually refutes that. Oh, actually it works for this, but also it doesn't work for that. Nobody's going to watch that. No, no. It's, it's you... infotainment. So you're just giving, you're trying to entertain with info and you're not going to get the balanced side. You got to have a shock value, right? And so as a consumer, you got to look at where you're getting the information from. If you're getting it from something that's very boring and very hard to read, it's probably probably the best place to get it from. <laughs> right. Right. It's probably a little more um, non-biased. Mm -hmm. And the more it gets bite-sized, the more likely there is to have bias towards it. And that's the point of what we're talking about with the edge you is that we want to share our opinions, but we want to give you the links to go look at the research. Yeah. Right. It's okay to listen to people's opinions. It's not okay to let that opinion form your opinion without you having to do some due diligence. Right. And that's how I feel about it. I say prove me wrong kind of thing. Cause I'm cool with that. Then I get to learn too. Cause I don't think I'm right. I'm sharing my opinion and it's an opinion. Mm -hmm. It's an opinion based on some education, but it's a justified, educated opinion, mm -hmm. but it's not a fact. Which, by the way, is the best way to learn when you actually like study the brain. And this is for uh, this is for learning. This is in studying what we're talking about, or this is for basketball, whatever. When you make an error, and then that error is corrected, that's worth double in the brain. So instead of me just reading and being like, okay, I'm right, if I read and I grind to get that information... And I go, okay, I think I'm right. And then you come in and say, actually, it's this. I made that correction in my brain, and that's worth double. That yes. really sticks now. You're getting connections. And Paul, I don't know if you did that on purpose. What a segue, my God, because we're going to talk a little bit about here about performance feedback. Yeah. Because that fits exactly in with that concept. Yeah. The idea of giving our body feedback. And so I'm going to take a little bit of a right turn here because this fits so well with the idea of us learning. Learning is learning, whether we're learning movement, whether we're learning new facts. Our body makes neuronal neuronal neural connections in the yeah. body. Oh, good lord let's pause to deal with this we'll all take, day we'll take close neuronal. enough neuronal yeah. neural yeah. that sounds kind of cool <laughs> neural connections in order to synthesize an outcome mm -hmm. for example i might read uh i'll go back to that fad diet thing really quick and i might read and not understand any context so what i read i make the connection one-to-one -one that this article must be right as opposed to someone else who might be a registered dietitian who has a wide variety of information on a similar topic, they read it and they take it and they fit it in within a file cabinet of all other things in that context. So it is not the hinge point, it's just a piece of the puzzle. Yep. Now that same thing happens with movement. Now when we are talking about movement and performance and skill, skill is a manifestation of what someone learned. So an example would be James Harden, we're just talking about this on the way over, and his step back. He has learned that that is successful. If James Harden didn't score points on his step back, he probably wouldn't do the, his step back anymore. Right. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. But his learning process is based on a feedback process. Did I score? Did I get the outcome I wanted to? And so his body, his skill, his nervous system has orchestrated his muscles to work in a certain way to have a certain outcome, which is that step back, which no one else can really mimic. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about the weight room, that same thing is part of it. It's part of the whole outcome. So hey, let's think about performance outcomes. In a basketball, you shoot. I'm shooting lefty right now. Let's talk about. I'm not a lefty. Yeah, why are you lefty all of a sudden? I thought about James Harden getting my step back <laughs> in, <laughs> my lefty shot. Right. We're talking about outcomes in basketball. You know if you made or missed it, and then you have feedback. If you're okay, I, I didn't release it right. It came on fingertips wrong. 
So you self-organize. You self-organize, right? That's, that's the fancy, self-organization is the fancy word for your artificial intelligence of your body. Yeah. Self-organization just means body knows not good, body learn not do right. kind of thing. It's a fancy word that we like to use to sound cool. Um, it's like imagine if you had a big pile of papers that just self-organized itself. Right, it's the body has a mind to it. it, has all these papers, these concepts, and as you apply it, it takes the papers and it puts it together in a way that it makes sense of it. So and it puts it together in a much better way than we could ever put it together consciously. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and so we gotta find ways to make learning and make learning in a feedback environment. How can we have more performance feedback to make it what's called autonomous, or I like the word minimally conscious. I heard. It's not unconscious. Yeah. It's not fully yeah. conscious, but minimally conscious. It's perfect. And so that we might be aware, but we're not calculated. Mm -hmm. For example, if we're trying to jump high, there's tons of stuff. There's actually awesome studies that if we're trying to jump high, the best outcome or best motivator for jump height was simply seeing your own jump height. Mm -hmm. They actually had money that they'd give someone if they could beat their previous jump height, but they didn't show him their jump height and they didn't jump as high. Yeah. Because not just motivation that you're desiring to jump and perform, but you're learning. If you if you jump, I would love to see the study to see people guess how high they jumped. Because I don't think people are very good at it. Yeah. People don't know innately how high they jump. Mm -hmm. So they don't know what a good jump was. Which is why when you jump to try and dunk a ball, it's way more enjoyable, but also more feedback. People say, oh, you know, I go practice dunking. I feel like I can, you know, I get better at dunking way faster than I work from the gym. Yes, it's not because you're jumping more or less, assuming all jumps equal. It's probably because you're learning that that one jump, which you wouldn't have known the difference in the gym, because you're not trying to dunk it, got your rim stuffed in the gym, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the courts, I should say. So gym being the weight room court, being the basketball court. So we got to find ways to give learning opportunities to the body in a way that it's not disrupting you to say, lead leg out in front, but knee up, you know, reach up. And that becomes really conscious. No, I want you to have an outcome and have your body learn and then challenge the environment that it's in. Okay, I'm gonna do one step, I'm gonna do four steps, I'm gonna come with a high velocity approach. Mm -hmm. Now you're applying all these different contexts to the environment, the environment being what you are going through, your approach, and you're challenging yourself to now jump higher and organize around that so all these environmental exposures, running fast, two-step approach, one-step approach, full-court approach, are teaching your muscles then to say, okay, this is the best way to do it. Yep. And that's a similar fashion of what the weight room might do, assuming it's done properly, is that it's teaching someone the body, whether you're doing plyometrics or you're doing certain ballistic movements, like try to move bar as fast as you can, to fire in a way to get the best outcome possible. But you're now, environment has changed to heavy weights and load, which is different than that of, say, running and you know being on the court. Right. So it's environmental manipulation. No, for sure. And so the the simple takeaway of that is always try to have an outcome mm -hmm. uh, instead of just like randomly jumping, like jump and try to touch something because then you go, oh man, I got my wrist over the rim on that one. What'd I do? Self-organize. And so now you can repeat that again. If you're just jumping and touching the air, you don't know if it was good or bad. And then change your jump approach. So if you think the outcome is you measuring if you did something well, having a ram or something to touch, now change the environment, which is maybe your approach. I'll take two steps. I'll take eight steps. I'll take one step. Uh, I'll have a band pull me fast. I'll do it outside. I'll do it you know, in the court. And you'll have, I'll do it on a lower hoop, a higher hoop. Whatever mm -hmm. it may be, you're changing that environment around it. Yeah. 
And like talking about um, talking about in the weight room, this is why guys like you and I are pretty obsessed with velocity-based training is because on one end, what velocity-based training does is it gets a maximal intent, right? Anytime you have somebody measuring you, like even before I knew about velocity-based training and before I could afford it, an actual way to track it, I put a stopwatch on people and I just timed them from thighs parallel to standing up. I wanted you to get up in 0.5 seconds. Is that very accurate? No, but people know that now you have a stopwatch on them and so they're getting max intent. And so on one end, simply measuring, even if it's not accurate, can improve results. But on the other end, getting accurate with an actual velocity uh, tracker is better because then you can truly self-organize. So boom, I stand up at you know 0.7 meters per second. Oh, that was good. That was my record. And then you go, okay, self-organize. How can I repeat that again? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to talk about some of the science behind why velocity-based training is awesome, in my opinion. So we're talking about velocity-based training. And let me give you some stipulations. So velocity-based training has to be done with maximal intent, mm -hmm. moving the bar as fast as you can. And in this case, we're doing it with feedback, whether you're measuring the bar speed or someone's got a stopwatch on you. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the neurological portion first. When you move evolutionary first your body doesn't want to move a light load faster than it needs to yeah what's the benefit of it well the only time you throw a rock to kill an animal is when you're throwing a rock to kill an animal right if you want to move a rock that's in your way you're just going to move it out of your way you're not going to throw it 10 yards yeah, path of least resistance and so your body doesn't want to you know utilize excessive amounts of energy on tasks it doesn't deem important mm -hmm. So we have to now find a way to make this task important. We have to find a way to say, okay, look, brain, I want you to jump your highest. I know you can lift, you know, 100 pounds just fine, but I want you to move it really fast. Mm -hmm. And you might try really hard, but you still really don't move it as fast as you can. Now, that's part of because you might be desensitized from your brain telling your muscles to work, eh, it's kind of you know saying, yeah, we're going to try 80%. We're going to tell you, we're, you're going to think you're doing 100. You're only going to do 80%. But the minute you get something that measures it, like a feedback tool, now you can see, oh, I didn't, it wasn't as fast as I got. It becomes arousal. So you have uh, your nervous system gets excited. You get competitive. Yeah, that's the key right And then there. all that's of a sudden you get ready to competitive. go. And now competitive it goes back to evolutionary standpoints. And if you want to talk about like mating, it's a comp competition. And so in, the, in a very primal way, it's like continuing your bloodline essentially was how it was. If you think about very way, way back caveman days. So that competition is a competition for a reason. Is it trying to survive? So your body goes, okay, I'm trying, let's rock and roll. Let's make this, let's make this happen. Cause either you enter that fight or flight state of sympathetic nervous system. You're probably in that fight state. You're ready to rock. So now you are exerting more effort than you would otherwise into that bar. Mm -hmm. You're lifting it faster because it's become competitive. And what that does is when you move the bar as fast as you can, your brain sends signals to the muscles in different ways. So first and foremost, there's what's called a feedback and a feed forward model. So a feedback is like um, you're doing something, you're picking a water glass, a glass of water up, and you realize that, you know, you kind of wiggled it wrong. So you, you get feedback that it was almost going to spill. Then you straighten it back up. Maybe during a slow squat, you get feedback that your hip's shifting one way. So you recenter it, come back up. You don't have those models in sports. You have what's called a feed forward model where you predict what's going to happen. That's like, I'm going to go jump 
and try and dunk on someone. But when I step and hit the ground, I don't go, oh, my foot's a little bit off. Let me move my weight here. No, it predicts where you should put your foot ahead of time, how much force you should apply. Mm-hmm. So when you now try something with maximal intent, you use that feed forward model because you don't have time to get feedback because it's all systems go. It's kind of like shooting a bullet out of a gun. Boom, it's gone. It's been released. It's called a motor engram. A motor engram is kind of like the blueprints that your brain uses to organize muscles. So as opposed to calling up each muscle and saying, you're going to do this, and then the muscle responds, oh, you know, we're actually leaning a little bit to the right. Now, let's pull us back left. It sends out the blueprint and says, all right, go. Right. All systems go, and it releases it. And so now we have what's called a feed forward model and releasing that motor engram ahead of time. And now what happens is neurologically, your muscle sends electrical muscles. Your brain goes on the spinal cord, sends electrical impulses to the muscle, and you have higher EMG spikes. So EMG is what measures the electrical activity of the muscle, the communication. Now, when you try to move something as fast as you can, the brain sends more impulses to the muscle and says, go, 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 as fast as you can. And when it does, it actually increases the rate of force development. So it rapidly accelerates that bar, that initial standpoint. That initial movement is very important because sports are all done in impulsive manners. It's that quick, explosive movement. So we have those neurological benefits that occur, not just from a feed-forward model that we were trying to do something. I'm going to jump as high as I can. Brain releases the blueprint, the muscles jump, and then you get feedback from whether you jumped high enough. So it understands, did I make a prediction error? Did I step right? Could I have stepped better on my penultimate step before I jump? Mm-hmm. Your cerebellum works in there for prediction error. So it's fine-tuning the system to make sure you're jumping properly. But then you also have benefits from a neurological standpoint, neurophysiological, to where these muscles are receiving impulses at a higher rate and it's recruiting more big muscle fibers because it's recruiting higher threshold motor units. And at times... It makes those motor units, so a motor unit is that nerve, and the muscle innervates, the muscles it's connected to. It's kind of like um, the central commander has a phone or a text message, and his text message goes to a group text message. And then all the guys in the group are the muscles, and the big muscle, the big neurons have a lot of people in their group message, the big powerful dudes. And so when he, what he does is he's very hard to get a hold of, this guy who's a, the higher motor, neuron, motor unit neuron. But you can actually convince him to be active a little more. So if we continue to activate him, we, we call lowering your uh, activation threshold. So you can actually activate these big motor neurons easier. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're becoming friends with the boss a little bit more. You can get yeah. a hold of him. You can shoot him a text and say, hey, can you pull some strings for me? And he messages the group and they all go Right. because you're on his good side. So when you have a ballistic intent, maximal effort, you have the feed forward model, releases the blueprints. You have the outcome. So did I jump and touch high enough? You have the learning process of the body says, hey, did I organize the movement the best I could? Did I misstep a little bit? Did I step the best? And then you have the neurological phenomenons occurring at the muscles where they're working harder and harder, which is then educating the nervous system that we got to do movements just like this every time. Right. Yeah, that's a great breakdown. I like that example of the text message. That's a good way to just visualize it. That's, yeah. that's a good way to visualize motor unit recruitment. And so I know that a lot of people are just getting hung up on that itself. When we're talking about velocity-based training, we don't always mean lifting a light bar fast. No. It, it can be a heavy weight, and it's still velocity-based training. Now it's just, it happens to be slower, but we're still basing things off of the velocity of the bar. So you don't have to necessarily max out, and it no longer has to be like, okay, can you throw three plates on? It's like... Let's throw two plates and what speed do you move it at? So let me label it this. There's velocity-based profiling, 
which is where I have you lift a bunch of weights. I measure how fast the bar moves. And I say, oh, look, you need to work on this area. So I measured, you know, from 10% to 90% of your wander at max. And I measured each speed at which each weight is lifted. And I profile you saying you might be deficient or need to work on a certain area. That's profiling. Velocity-based training is when I use a velocity to help dictate the load on the bar. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't say use light loads. It's just using a velocity to help act as a, cro- a cross-check to the load on the bar. So if I'm lifting 80% of my one rep max and I measure the speed, that's still velocity-based training because I'm basing my training on the velocity at which the bar is moving. Yeah. And then there's velocity-based tracking. And this is simply, I'm going to do my workouts without anything that measures how fast it moves. So I'm just going to do a normal workout. But every week, I'm just going to see how fast I can move 200 pounds. So now you're tracking the progress at the what 200 pounds is being lifted at. Mm-hmm. So that's velocity-based tracking. Velocity-based profiling is used to measure deficiencies in areas that you might want to improve. Velocity-based training can be utilized to increase motivation. It can be utilized to provide feedback on the outcome and can be utilized to make sure you're lifting the weight that you want to lift at a certain velocity. And velocity-based tracking is a way to simply track your progress over time. Mm -hmm. In means of burdensome, so how much effort it takes, velocity-based profiling takes the most time. Velocity-based training takes really not much time at all. You just stick a thing on the bar and you see how fast you move it. Velocity-based tracking is even less because you don't even do it every time you lift. You just do it once in a while. Right. And now when we talk about velocity, we got to understand that movement is based on velocity. So when we throw a baseball, when you jump high, your takeoff velocity dictates how high you jump. So jump height is actually just another way to measure takeoff velocity. Takeoff velocity is just another way to measure jump height. So velocity-based training is just a means of measuring displacement, how far something's gone. Mm -hmm. So you can use the same concept of velocity-based training, but use jump height. Maybe you use how fast you threw a medicine ball. Maybe you use how fast you ran a 10-yard sprint and you add weight on a sled. You can use it in a whole different fashions that you want. A radar gun, for whatever reason, you're throwing something. I don't care. Yeah. Um, but it allows you to have context to your outcome, again, to give you feedback on what you did, and then to allow you to assess your own performance for that magical word, self-organization of yes, movement sir. itself. And so, and then the other huge thing um, with velocity-based training, or maybe you put it on uh, under that other category of velocity-based tracking, is measuring the drop-offs in velocity. Yes. So now, hey, I'm 100%, 100%. 95%, 70%. Well, I should probably stop the set mm-hmm. depending on what goal I'm going for. But if we're looking at uh, explosiveness and we're trying to make that adaptation, well, if we keep having these drop-offs and we keep pushing it through or keep pushing through that, we're just going more and more and more on that endurance side, lower quality work, more fatigue. We're going against our goal. And so that is one of the biggest benefits of velocity-based training is we know when to stop the set. So a lot of our athletes, I don't tell them how many reps we're doing. I'm just like, hey, based on your previous workout, I want you to lift this weight. Let's do it. Let's see how many you can get. And then I'm once they drop off 10, 15%, I'm stopping them. So that might be two. That might be seven, right? Instead of going in and saying like, hey, you got to do eight reps. 
Well, what if they drop off at three? You don't want to push out those last five. No, you, there's no way to know how many reps you should lift. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just be very blunt. Well, that's, that's in everything. We just yeah. don't know. Even when we say velocity-based drop-off, we're trying to be less wrong. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. It, well, I was going to say, it's also different. I, I talked about this with Corey, actually, while we were lifting. And all of, like the strength coaches with a lot of experience, when I talked to them, I asked them, do you, like, when you personally lift, do you go in with a certain rep goal? They're like, no, dude, I just go off feel. Like, I know. And that's how I am. Like, I've lifted enough. I've tracked enough to where, like, I know. But the lower level athlete does not know, right? They don't have that experience to make those decisions. So sometimes, like, it is still valuable for them to have a program of, hey, you're on four sets of four. But that's a general recommendation. It may not be exactly four. Now, go off how you feel. Are you dropping off velocity? Well, maybe cut it short. But there is a gap. And so some people still need reps. And then some people have earned the right to train off intuition. So two things. One, RPE, so rate of perceived exertion, how hard an effort is, is correlated to velocity. So when you look at trainers who train themselves as by the feel, the feel is means rate of perceived exertion. Mm -hmm. And they know how fast a bar is moving intuitively. And so the ultimate goal would be great to have every athlete be able to have that same feel the same way you do. Because I'd be willing to bet that you would say, I train, the person I train the best is myself. Like there's no way around it. Yeah. We know ourselves yeah. better than we know anyone else. And so when you look at coaches who've done a lot of training with athletes, and they say, oh, you know, I, I can just see it. I can tell. And you say, oh, that's not objective. Well, it's not objective. Fact, right? I'm not measuring anything. But they have a sense of the athlete's RPE based on how they're exerting the effort onto the bar in the same way that they understand what they're moving. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we want general ideas, but I've had some really awesome um, works. I work with some general population as well. And just asking them, you know, how did that feel? <laughs> Was that easy? Right. Was that heavy? Right. Do you want to go up and wait? I think it looked good, but how did it feel? Because that helps them become very aware helps them become conscious of how they're perceiving the workouts. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's anything wrong with giving sets and reps, four by four. But just have a communication, be honest with you. How did that feel? It's supposed to be an eight. Was that an eight? Nah, man, that was a six. Yeah. Nah, that was a 10. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like some days someone comes in, they crushed it. And you go, all right, I'm going to load up a little bit today. And they bench the bar and you're like, oh, how did that feel today? And they're <laughs> right. like, ah, oh, man, that was a nine. I'm like, ooh, that's supposed to be a six. Yeah. Or the other way around. And so we got to make sure that our body is always changing. If anyone's ever taken a test before, they know they're not going to run their fastest 40-yard dash after taking a final in a class. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it a lot, you get stress on your body. A lot of energy, believe it or not, glucose goes to the brain and is utilized to help you think. That's important. Right? That's why when you have, not to get too far off, when you go keto, your body actually saves low glucose for the brain because your brain needs glucose. So uh, your body's stressed when it's thinking it needs some glucose metabolism. And you go work out, and now you have another stressor? Man, that's going to be tough. I don't know. Because now you have two big stressors on the body at once, and now what would have been, you know, 100 pounds would have been your one rep max. Maybe today it's only 90 because you're tired. It's contextual to your current state. Yep. That's where asking someone how they're feeling and helping them learn how where they should be at is very important for their own development. Yep. And that's why for me, the perfect formula for a training program is this. Plan, freestyle, 
track. Mm -hmm. You have to like, that's the other side is like some people trust their intuition too much and they don't plan anything and they're not on a progressive program. They're not doing any type of periodization. They're just trusting their gut and going in. Well, you're guessing. Maybe you guess the right way and you train yourself the right way. Mostly you're going to overtrain or undertrain yourself. So for me, it's like you go in with a plan. I know my yearly plan. I know when I'm in my more power phase, my more plyo phase, my more strength, whatever it is. Within the, the sessions, I know kind of my general goal, but within that, I'm going to freestyle. Now I'm going to trust my intuition. Just because the page says eight doesn't mean I need to go to eight if that doesn't feel right, if I feel like my velocity is dropping off. If I'm doing more hypertrophy and I don't feel any type of burn at six, hey, maybe I should keep going. You know, maybe I should go to 12. So it's like have that plan within the day freestyle, but then after you have to track because then the next time we come in, we got to know, okay, this is where I left off in order to progressively overload. I got to keep some of these variables the same and maybe tweak one of these variables. So I think for me, that's the perfect formula. And this is something I try to teach all of our online clients because they got to they gotta learn that ability to trust their intuition and freestyle within the session based on how they feel. Uh, but you can go too far on both sides. Either I too, freestyle too much or I rely too much on the plan. For me, it's plan, freestyle, track. No, I, I love it. I love it because you don't know how they're going to be that day. You don't know tomorrow. Yep. Um, think about it in terms like this. People like to think of progress as a straight line from A to B going up at an angle. Say a 45 degree angle. But really, if you zoom in on that, it's actually a squiggly line with a lot of ups and downs along the way. So in the macro, the big picture, it looks like you went from A to B in a straight line. The day-to-day, -day, you go up and down. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to adjust for it. And one of the things I've, looking back, I've been really appreciative of, is I work with a lot of older adults at Iowa State, and one day their knee might just be hurting them. <laughs> one day their shoulder just bothers them. So guess what? We're not going to force them to do something that's going to light them up in one way or the other. Yeah. And that's the idea. My plan is we want to get stronger. We're going to track what numbers we lifted, but we're going to adjust the daily. Because we can adjust the daily, then we can make the best out of the situation that we're given. If you, it's like playing blackjack. Okay, I came on the on the flight over here. I played way, I got way too into blackjack for some reason <laughs> on my phone. I got really hot one night. I don't play for actual money. It's like on a little phone. I got to like seventy five k, and I was I could start with like hundred bucks. I was oh, wheeling man. and dealing. I lost it all. I made a really bad bet. Um, but the idea is that you can't play your cards unless you see at least one of the dealer's cards. If I were to just play my cards, I'm just guessing. Mm -hmm. But we do get some insight into that person, right? We don't get the full hand. The person's not an open book. They're not going to tell you everything. But they might show you one of the two cards. Then you can play the best hand you can play. Now, sometimes when you play a blackjack, you want to hit. You're raising. You don't think, you know, that that you either you got dealt a bad hand yourself and you're trying to make the best of a situation. So you're like, you know what? Your knee might be bothering you, but we're going to really get after this. I think X, Y, and Z is going to be just fine. Or sometimes you just stand and hope things work the best. You can't control everything, but you go, what? Well, you know, I'm not going to um, try to go all in with this because I think that knee's really bothering you. We're just going to hold and we're going to let be it, let it be. And it's going to be the best we can make it. But we can't do that unless we know what that other card is. Otherwise, you're just guessing. Right. We are kind of guessing. Let's not lie. It's a little bit of guesswork, but at least it's some justification of what we're guessing on because we at least see one of their cards. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't like to open up to you. Oh, I'm fine. 
Are you fine? Oh, yeah, I promise. Really? Are you sure? You're limping. Oh, no, I'm good. Okay, we're going to work out the next day. Oh, my knee's killing me. Yeah. Well, I saw you limping yesterday, but you told me you were fine. I asked you nine times, and you're very adamant we squat, and I, I want to make sure you're happy, so we're going to, you know, I don't want to squat you, but we're going to do it. Yeah, no, I ended up taking a spill, you know, this week and when I was BMXing. I have yeah. fun. Oh, uh, you didn't want to tell me that? No, I thought I just bruised it. Oh, uh, what? What are you talking about? And like all of a sudden you realize they didn't give you the full hand. Right. They didn't show you everything. And sometimes you, they're not going to like, especially the private side, they want to squat. They're going to squat with you or squat with someone else. Yeah. No, and so sure. you're like, okay, fine. We're going to do a little bit of goblet squats. I don't want to, I convince you, but they're like, nah, dude, it's good. And they'll show you, they'll like run around and jump yeah. and they're a good salesperson. You're kind of like, oh, <laughs> they're right. They maybe a little achy. Yeah. Come the next day. Like, Damn it. Like should not have let you squat at all. Right. But you couldn't, what are you supposed to do? Um, because they didn't open everything up. And if I tell you, Hey Paul, you know, I'm doing just fine. And I look just fine. And I give you all, you pass all the screening and you're like, okay, we're going to touch on it lightly. But really, you know, I might have had more going on even than that person was aware of. It happens. Right. But it's having that context. For sure. For sure. And a lot of times they don't know what to communicate and what not to communicate. They go out and they play two hours of basketball or, hey, Paul, I played pickup. When really that doesn't mean you played two pickup games. You played all day because you guys kept winning. And so now in my mind where we would go is no like super heavy knee dominant stuff. But in your mind, it's just like, hey, basketball is basketball. It's whatever. And so uh, a lot of times they don't know exactly what to communicate and like the exact information that the trainer needs mm -hmm. to make the right actual correction and the right, uh, the appropriate uh, recommendation for that day. Um, okay, let's take a little right turn. Maybe not too hard of a right turn, but a slight right. It's like us driving on right. the highway. Slight right. Slight but Paul, right. <laughs> what a turn. I, oh, I forgot. <laughs> Oops. Slight right, slight right. This guy was giving me so many good ideas that I just forgot to pay attention to the direction. You should have seen us find the Airbnb last night. My God, oh, that was. No. <laughs> well, first, no, first, first we got stuck at a truck stop. Remember oh, we, yeah, we went yeah to the, I got the off at an exit and we were, yeah, we were surrounded by trucks. <laughs> going to pick up some imported food or something. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's the wrong turn. Made a U-turn, got back on the highway, missed like five more turns. Then we got to this Airbnb because we wanted to stay by the gym and the studio because we're locking in all week. So we got this Airbnb and man, every street in Newport by the beach looks exactly so the I'm same. I'm going to stop Paul here because I got to tell this because I'm not going to let him put his opinion. So it all looks the same. I'm a passenger in this. <laughs> And so I'm riding here, and Paul, we're going straight, and he's like, oh, I don't know if this is the right spot. I'm looking at the Google Maps, and we're not on the path that's telling us. <laughs> and so I'm not going to say anything and go, I don't know, maybe it's wrong. And Paul turns and goes, ah, that looks familiar. <laughs> I was like, okay, and we drive around it. And I'm not really paying attention. I realize we've driven in circles. <laughs> Paul, where are we? He's like, no, we're good. I think it's just back there. And he goes back and goes, oh, this looks familiar. I'm like, Paul, I think, I think the arrow is pointing us on the other side. You're like, oh. Oh, you're right. Like, okay. So we go back and it's a simple mistake. It's a wrong left turn. So we go back and then we must have driven through the same alley six times. And I wish I filmed Paul because he might be the most optimistic dude I know. Because every time we turn the same alley, he's like, ah, this is it. I'm like, no, I think it's the same one we, we were just in. He's like, nah, nah. I'm like, that's the same coupe in front of us. <laughs> we did. We did that one four times. And that every time hilarious. we said, oh, this is it. Oh, this, this, oh, this, this looks, looks familiar. familiar. <laughs> the issue is we're Very chatting optimistic. the whole time trying to yeah. talk about ideas. Yeah. And you're not paying attention well, enough to drive. But I mean, then my mind was the, not the there. Tesla was. I'll tell you, we had three Google Maps up. We had a Tesla, yeah. mine, and Paul. It was very confusing to find. Yeah. Not anyone's fault. 
But it was hilarious. Yeah. It's it a good was, start. It was Elon Musk's fault. He's supposed to direct me exactly to where I'm going. I shouldn't have to do any thinking. Isn't there an Elon button you call it? I think it? so. I think he picks up and he goes, oh, your apartment's there. So, but he didn't <laughs> he was, do He was that, outside dude. waving he was, us in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. So we're taking a slight right on this one. Uh, basically, we are talking about, okay, velocity-based training. I know a lot of people, when they hear that, they go... Light training versus heavy training. And this is one of like the top debates in strength and conditioning. Like how heavy do we need to be lifting? Like if we're looking for, I don't want to be a power lifter. I'm looking to jump high. I'm looking to run fast. Now this gets very complex and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but I like to get other opinions and I know you're super strong yourself. You probably deadlift twice as much as me. Oh, boy. Uh, so you might have a slightly different opinion, but also I, I respect the way that you put it all into context. So what are your thoughts? Like if I'm just a basketball player, I really don't care about how much weight I lift. Uh, can it help me? Can it hurt me? Where are you at on that? So let me clear the air on some of the confusion. I think I know why this has been confused. And then we'll dive into my opinion. Yeah. So I had a great conversation with Challenger Strength on this. As that's his IG handle, great dude. Go check him out. I only give out IG handles, no full names. If you want to go check him out, go check him out. Um, and uh, we talked about is there strong enough? Is there a point in time which I become too strong? And the answer is you can never produce too much force and context to your sport. Of course. But you can get to a point where your strength gains in the weight room are not transferring to your force application sports. So there is no such thing as producing too much force in context to sport. There is such thing as having less transfer of a heavy exercise to that context of sport. So technically, no, you can't get strong enough if it's in context of force application for the sport. But yes, you can waste your time doing exercises that don't transfer. Right. And like Paul said, measure. Right. We freestyle and measure. And so if we measure if our jump height is getting better, then we can continue with the exercises we're doing, assuming that it's transferring. But then there gets to a point where maybe being strong at a certain movement, like a squat, no longer carries over to being strong, I'll use that term loosely, and jumping mm-hmm. because the context becomes different. And so that's the simple answer to that very complicated debate. It's inarguable, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's a bulletproof. I answer. agree. And let me be a YouTube commenter who tries to argue that. Okay. Oh, uh, very excited. Yeah, but it, oh. you like how aggressive I, I came with that's that? Very mean, I'm Paul. Tr- yeah, I'm trying to get my YouTube voice on. All right. But, Max, it doesn't hurt me to squat 600 pounds, so why not? If it could potentially transfer and it doesn't hurt me, there's no such thing as too strong, why? Why Why is that a problem? Why do you care what I do? So let me add context to that. If you can continue to get linearly strong without having to put in any more effort or time or diverted resources to getting stronger, then sure, why not get as strong as possible? Boom. What kind of grind did you put in to get there? But if you have to spend more effort to squat that and that effort from an economical standpoint would have been better served doing other movements with higher transfer well then that's not a smart decision if we just look this purely from an economic standpoint let's move all opinions aside Um, let's look at return on investment 
at what point in time would I have a better return on my investment doing a different exercise? Mm -hmm. Is there an exercise, another stock I could invest in that might give me a better return on my money, on my time and my efforts than squatting? And if not, squat till your heart's content. Every person's different. But for some people, maybe squatting doesn't give them the best return on investment. And that could be biomechanically, physiologically, neurologically, or what the hell else we don't know about the body. By the way, there's a great statement that I read about, um, is a Pavo Comey's book. And it basically said in three sentences, oh, by the way, we don't know anything about the body in sport. So let's not pretend like we do. It's really funny because the paper all is muscle physiology yeah. and uh, neurophysiology. At the end of it, really a short little text, it says, we, uh, we don't know, basically. We don't know how muscles fire in complex situations because you measure all the muscles at once to do this. And we can't do this any possible way. Mm -hmm. So we make a lot of inferences and inferences or assumptions can be erroneous. And so if for some reason the squat works for you, don't assume it works for everyone. Just use a logical economical standpoint of if I invest my time in the squat, is it transferring to jump height? Yeah. And that's the it's, simple way of looking at it. At the end of the day. Okay. So you're looking at, well, how much time do we have yep. in training? Well, if you're really grinding to get that 600-pound squat, there goes a lot of that time. How much, like you talk about, adaptive energy do we have? So you're stealing energy to adapt mm -hmm. from that squat, which isn't translating anyways. How much knee juice do we have? How much forces can the knees go through? If you got to go out and do some plyometrics, which might have a higher return, you got to play basketball. You got to get human strong, so we got to expose ourselves to different movements. How much more can our knees go through? So is that a good investment on our knees to squat 600 pounds, right? So there's a lot of areas where you gotta, you gotta pull from. You gotta steal from this area to fuel your squatting habit that's required to get you to 600, 500, 400 pounds, whatever. And there's also an interesting aspect in that in regards to how we measure lower body strength. Because the squat is assumed to be the best means of measuring lower body strength in this model we're assuming. But that doesn't mean it's the best means to do it. Yeah. No one ever said a barbell was made to be the best means of developing lower body strength. It never right. was it written or nor was it designed to do such. Mm -hmm. It's actually arguably designed well, but not the best. You'd rather have some direct vertical pull on you that's not going to actually load you and be very stable to express the most amount of force and bilaterally in both legs. So when we look at force expression, you might go, oh, well, Zion Williamson doesn't squat 600 pounds. But I'm also willing to bet Zion Williamson is very strong in the lower body. Mm -hmm. So I think your strength, there is a part where it plays a role relative to your body weight. Oh, yeah. Dr. Absolutely. Matt Rea came out and said, I think it's 1.7 pounds, 1.7 pounds, 1.75 by body weight mm -hmm. is for sprinting. The last point they saw any correlation to top speed. Mm. And we know that sprinting is very similar to an approach jump, different than a static vertical. But you can see why that'd be you know, corollary there is a transfer momentum and no longer does the speed become contextual. Maybe only be strong enough to support the system to allow it to transfer energy as opposed to be strong enough to have to produce maximum amounts of energy or force. As opposed to a standing vertical, getting really strong probably does help a standing vertical. Yeah. Because time is so much longer. Get, that's why you see these Olympic guys probably have crazy standing verticals. Mm-hmm. 
but also how often do you do a standing vertical? And secondly, how are you performing the standing vertical? Yeah. Like, are you performing the standing vertical with a deep knee bend and a deep hip bend? You can rarely use that in games. You can't use that. Or are you doing a really quick one? Yeah. I just watched a high jumper this morning and he did a super quick knee bend and jumped very high. Mm. And I was like, well, he could probably jump higher if he bent further, but he's wired to be short knee bend, jump high. Yep. So maybe under the perfect umbrella, we just need to measure the right things and then say, okay, not just jump height, but we use something called an RSI mod. Yep. So RSI mod, for those of you not familiar, it's measured on a force plate. It's called reactive strength index modification. And it basically, in short, measures how fast you perform your jump and how high you jump. And if you perform a jump very fast, we can make the assumption that the knee bend was very minimal to quick, small joint angles. So that's a way of saying, okay, look, I only want a short knee bend. I actually talked to Drake B about it. Drake, I'm sorry, dude. I always say your name. Drake Berbere. I think it is Berber, Berber, Bear, Bear, Strength to Speed. I, I called him that yesterday. Right. I talked to Drake all the time, but I can't say his last name it's ever, right? Drake B. Drake B, my dude. Yeah. And we talked about how, and this is for you science nerds out there, maybe we only define jumps we want to look at that are called unimodal. So if you look at a force time curve, a force time curve is someone who bends their knees really low and jumps up high. They have two humps. They have one where's the initial kind of force buildup and a second one where their center of mass kind of shifts over and they have two humps, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one if you do a really fast one with minimal hip flexion, you'll just get one big hump. It looks yep. like a bouncy ball hitting the ground. Yep. Now, maybe we should only measure ones that have a unimodal single hump because that's a, maybe a threshold in which the knee bend is only so far. Mm-hmm. So this is where if you understand the context or how things are being measured, you can understand how to look at certain research studies and say, okay, look, unimodal curves, because there's a research study that did this, were those that had really that higher RSI mods because their contraction time was so much shorter. Yeah. And so now we can utilize technology, not just without a compass. Right now, this frustrates me so much, is we use comp technology, we go buy his technology, um, and we, we want to buy it, and we just want some paper to tell us what it's used for. And we say, oh, well, it measures how high I jump, it measures my eccentric rate of force development, but if you really just understand the basic physics behind it, you can then develop your own means of having a reasonable way of understanding how to apply it. So I want to now maybe just have a unimodal curve when I test people, and then I want to test their bimodal curve heights. And maybe there's a difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Maybe that difference becomes a metric. Unimodal divided by bimodal, or the Absolutely. difference between it. Yeah. So Paul's eyes are oh, right in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's something that I've been looking at, actually. Oh, so, yeah, of course. That... <laughs> yeah, huh? You haven't? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. No, I... but that, like, we can use our force plates now in a way that yeah. we have, I guess, this word all time, an educated justification to use it. Not just a justification, an educated one. Yeah. And that's one reason why. So I've had, you know talks on podcasts on opinions that weren't necessarily popular stuff like this hey you don't just have to back squat a lot of weight and the reason is because i'm looking at these changes on a force plate and i'm looking at a lot of different variables and how that back squat affects that variable so like you said maybe you do improve your standing vertical jump your impulse goes up well that doesn't necessarily mean that we can apply that in sports uh you know maybe RSI mod is the better thing to look at at carryover. Now, what everybody else, anybody who's refuting this statement, it's because they're reading other research. And that research sometimes is showing vertical, uh, the heavy squat improves the vertical jump. 
Well, that's the big limiter in research in general is that's what everything is compared to is a standing vertical jump. That's not what we're after. It's one of those things where it's like, we've spent years and years and years and decades, centuries, looking at how exercises affect the vertical jump. But maybe we are asking the wrong question in the first place. How does it affect your approach vertical jump? How does it affect your RSI mod? So let's get a little more complex in what we're actually after. And then once you do that, then you can start to track, okay, this exercise actually made a change in the RSI mod. Well, maybe that's more important than the extremely heavy back squat. Yeah, and it's part of that too is let's have context to how we do a movement, right? If we're looking at correlation from vertical jump to sprinting, well, first off, don't just look at jump height, but let's pretend we have a force plate. Maybe we want to have some constraints with it. How can we standardize a jump even more? Maybe we only allow them to bend down to a certain point, like yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Maybe we do an RSI where you jump off of a box, you hit the ground and jump up high, but only ones that are under 200 milliseconds count. Yep. Because that's a fast one, and mm -hmm. that ground contact time is similar to that of a of an approach jump. Mm -hmm. So having context and then constraints allow you to manipulate variables in a testing manner that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. Drum roll, please. I don't uh -oh. think you can hear that in the drum roll. Uh-oh. Imagine... It's a terrible drum roll. I thought it was going to be better. That's even worse. You're, you're getting worse. Uh, that's okay. That pretty, that's acceptable. That was actually pretty good. It's not good. It's drum acceptable. Don't, don't, get, don't get too far. It's not good. It's acceptable. That's pretty good. Can we, <laughs> Calvin, can we put a drum roll? Yeah, just, can we, just can help, insert help this guy out. <laughs> help this guy out. Imagine if we only compared squats but never looked at how deep they squatted. Yeah. Exactly. The world would come to an end. <laughs> exactly. I mean, oh, my God. That does not count as a squat because it was not deep enough. But we don't do that for jumps. So we're so adamant on context to arguably the movement that doesn't really matter. But then we're not adamant about context to the movement we're actually trying to measure. Mm -hmm. So you have to have constraints in both realms. We have a constraint and we only count squats that where the knee goes to femur goes to parallel. Great. I only count jumps that are, uh, you know, 200 milliseconds on the ground. Yeah. So we get so fed up. Oh, you know, that squat isn't going to transfer because it's not low enough or vice versa. That squat's not going to transfer because it's not high enough. Okay, but what about how are you measuring the transfer? Are you yeah. measuring just on a jump? Because mm -hmm. maybe you should limit hip flexion. Maybe you shouldn't have these. You should have these constraints that mimic that of sport more. Right. And so that's where I start to lose hair on my head and start to fall out because I'm going crazy when I read debates on semantics. Why are we so concerned about this arbitrary movement of a squat, but we aren't concerned? about the context and how you're actually measuring a vertical. Right. Are you measuring it with a vertex? Are you measuring it with an approach? Are you measuring it with a force plate? Is your yeah. hands on hips? What's the yeah. knee depth? What's the time? All these other variables go into it. Yep. The neurophysiological me mechanisms of one jump is not equivocal to another jump when the constraints are changed. The, how your brain operates as a systemic, um, a systemic mover of parts is very different. How we impact the ground is very different. Is there a slight hop? Is there an open chain preload? Is there antagonist, agonist co-contractions that's occurring in this movement or there's they're not. Yep. There's huge amount of information that goes into it. And before something else, because I'm complaining or not complaining, but maybe suggesting more context and understanding does not mean I'm ever putting down a single researcher. Anybody who's, oh, no. By the way, anybody it's, who's ever done research, 
if you have done research, hats off to you. I appreciate you. Let me buy you a coffee and thank you. And if you haven't done research to complain about it, go buy someone else a coffee who's done research because yeah. guess what? People who do research do research so nerds like myself can learn. Right. So I can sit here and talk to you about providing more context and understanding about how you interpret your data, but by no means am I attempting to bash any research. So all researchers that are listening, I will buy... Oh my God, if they all came in and bought coffee, I'd probably That'd be got expensive, bro. Uh, maybe... <laughs> I will. I'll make you um, some protein pancakes. Yeah, yeah that's a little yeah. more doable. Yeah, might still be we can go to Costco and get testers. Yeah, I'll, yeah. You know. I'll refer you to the right place to buy your own coffee. Let's say that. Yeah. yeah. How, how about that? Yeah. You no. and I can get coffee together. <laughs> I won't buy you it, but we'll go together. Yeah, I like that. Okay. okay. Um, so first of all, and I agree when I say stuff like we're asking the wrong question. It's because a lot of times in studies, you got to make it as simple as possible. Like that's just a simple variable to check. Yes. Can you check the approach vertical? Well, now you're talking about a skill component. Mm -hmm. So did the training, uh, you, you can't tell if the training transferred because maybe they just learned how to jump better, right? The, the, the standing vertical jump is a very simple way to test. But I do think that we, uh, we uh, value those studies a little bit too much as trainers as coaches as athletes we look at like hey that showed an improvement in the standing vertical jump well that's going to be a good thing it might not be right and so there's moral of the story there's probably more to it and we should be looking at more variables we should be testing more variables with ourselves and, and tracking these changes that we're making a hundred percent and to it's having an understanding of how to interpret a paper yeah and so this is a big pet peeve of mine when you read a research paper, the conclusion is not conclusive. It is not the end-all, be-all. It is the oh. concluding statements of the paper. Yeah. So when someone goes, oh, but in the conclusion, it said, okay, cool. The conclusion are the concluding statements because yeah. the author is providing a very, very short summary of what has previously transpired in that paper. Now, if conclusions were conclusive... There'd be so many conflicting, <laughs> conclusive findings yeah. that nothing would be conclusive. And guess what? Nothing is conclusive. No, nothing so is final. Don't read a paper in terms of conclusion equals conclusive. This has been determined and now done. It is just a means uh, for the author to express his final understanding and, of the paper and results. But it is not for you to take it and act and wave it conclusively mm -hmm. until... It has been tested and measured on every human being alive. Right. So, uh, sorry. Facts, and facts. also, by the way, when you look at conclusions or statistical significance, you're looking at differences in means, averages. You're not looking at each individual. So what may happen is if eight out of the 10 individuals had massive improvements, the means, the beginning baseline and the ending baseline might be statistically significant. Mm -hmm. But two people actually didn't get better. That doesn't mean everyone will have statistical significant changes. There's actually a study on sprinting where the group that trained sprinting got slower. That doesn't mean like some of the guys in there might have been fatigued or whatever. There's a group on, there's a hypertrophy study where it had all the participants, Dr. Eddie Joe showed this and it showed all these participants who gained muscle mass, but then there were three who lost muscle mass. Mm -hmm. The results showed significantly statistical significance between the groups. The beginning group did this, the ending group did this, but in that statistical significant group, the group that alluded to an outcome, right? It's high probability of effectiveness. Three of them got worse. Yeah. 
So take it with and, how understand the stats. And when you stats. read the details, this happens all the time. I was just for November. I was looking up. Yeah. I was going back and looking up the the research studies on does it improve performance. And uh, one study I found it was like it improved ten meter, twenty meter, the thirty meter. A bunch of people actually decreased. Yeah. Like, do Nordics decrease at longer distance? No, it's not going to decrease. Yes, but- they do. <laughs> <laughs> for, New finding. Right, but but for whatever reason, it happened for them. You know, they they increase their vertical jump over 10 weeks they increase their vertical jump like uh, i think it was three or four centimeters was that the exercise or was that because this group has never tested on a vertex so when they came in they didn't know where to stand they didn't know how to reach the second time around you're a little bit better so was it the intervention was it the nordic or was it that they got better at that skill of jumping so you got to understand that i think when when people in our field read a study it's gospel. It's like, you're wrong because I have this piece of paper. You're not even the researcher. You're just the guy, the messenger of this paper. I have this paper (laughs) that this guy wrote somewhere who I've never met. The funny, the funny thing is like you get guys who are like religious about this piece of paper, but the guy who actually did the study is like very open-minded. Like, Hey, I don't know. That's what the research show, but we don't read the discussion. The guy's like, yeah, you know, the findings kind of alluded to it. It could be this too. Yeah. The conclusion said statistically significant. Like, Oh, Oh, you see that? Yeah. You know, there it is. Yeah. No, that's that. That's a good talk. I mean, that's super important. People need to know how to break down research before they really get into learning. But we took a hard right turn. I wanted to take a soft right turn. We we'll, took a hard right turn. We'll make right a turn. slight left. Slight Veer, left. We're veering left now. And let's get back to that talk about heavy barbell lifting. So, okay, we talked about the down. And first of all, Max and I, and I think every great trainer agrees that a certain base of strength is very, very important. Strength right? is the fundamental aspect to human life. Yes. Period. You can't stand if you're a baby because you're not strong enough. Yes. Uh, but what people associate with strength is barbell back squat. Well, what I'm looking at is human strength, and that could be in many different forms, many different exercises. We're looking at human strength, not necessarily barbell back squat strength. So... Like I'll, I'll put an athlete through a phase where our knee dominant movement is a rear foot elevated split squat. And maybe we're doing a deadlift and they're like, dude, am I going to lose bar- my, my, sc- I'm going to lose strength. What are we doing? I can't take a whole month off of back squats. No, you might lose barbell back squat strength, but your human strength is improving. And that's all that matters if your goal is being stronger in sports. So one that is important is knowing that the, the barbell back squat isn't like the end all be all. It could be part of the program. We're not saying it's bad. It could be important. But like this idea that every time I go up 10 pounds or every time I go up even 50 pounds, my vertical jump is going to increase is just not true. And so what we talked about already is competing demands. It's competing stimuli. You do more here. Your body's beat down. You can't do as much in other areas. There's time competition, whatever. There's also competition as far as adaptation. So like, Oh yeah. If we go inside, you know, the, what we were actually just talking about this at the nervous system level of, uh, you know, decreasing co-contraction sometimes like a dynamic, uh, you know, a drop jump, we need a certain amount of co-contraction. Sometimes when I'm in like a standing vertical jump and I'm trying to get up fast, I got to learn how to decrease co-contraction. So I'm contracting my glutes while I want my hip flexors to relax enough. There are studies that show when you do too much like heavy, heavy, slow movement, you can actually increase 
that co-contraction and that can carry over to performance in sprinting and in jumping. So there, there are some downsides to doing too much barbell slow work. There's other things I've read studies. I don't know the authors. I apologize. I've read studies about, uh, how fast twitch type two X respond to a lot of like heavy, slow barbell work. You can actually decrease your type two X super fast twitch. Whereas when they compare a fast barbell lift, there was no effect on those type two X. So you got all these good adaptations and you didn't decrease the type two X. Now there's a lot more that needs to be done. A lot of research that needs to be done on type two X. We really know nothing grand scheme. If you listen to our, uh, interview with Dr. Galpin, who's like a lead researcher in that area, he'll be like, look, we don't know much about type 2X, but there is some evidence that, look, if we do too much slow work, we can decrease that type 2X. Maybe we increase that type 2A, but maybe that's not the adaptation we want if we're going for maximal sprint speed. There's other things like, hey, maybe to maybe to get to a 500-pound back squat, I'm going to continue to improve hypertrophy, but at some, and hypertrophy could be a good thing early on, but at some point, maybe we've built too much. And now that squat strength isn't transferring over to your vertical jump. But guess what? We are heavier. We do have more mass to lift off the ground now. So again, it's one of those things where it's like some is good, but when you keep going, it can actually become detrimental. Yeah. The, um, first off, I think we're trying to put the papers on here if we have a means to do that. I think it's Gonzalez Baldio you're referencing. It's neuromuscular adaptations of velocity-based training. I think that's right. I got a hunch. It might be. I don't know. Drum roll again? <laughs> no. Please don't. Please save us. Calvin, put in a drum roll for this guy. Yeah, He's a, a scientist. He's not a, jump, a drummer. So, uh, no, but the idea is um, this guy named Barry Ross, I think it's called the Book of Secrets or Black Book of Secret Training or something. Barry Ross is the guy. I think he trained Allison Felix and he talked about this concept called mass specific force. It's a fancy way of saying put on muscle that moves, you don't put on muscle that doesn't. Yes. And making sure that the muscle that is working isn't necessarily getting heavier. It's re it, that muscle itself is improving its relative strength to its weight. Mm -hmm. And what he had an idea, and this is a little bit, a little bit off topic, but on topic too, was how can I find ways to express maximal force without putting on excessive amounts of weight? And so he would do things that were concentric only movements with, I think it was Allison Felix, great Olympic gold medalist sprinter in the 200, I believe. Um, and how she would do only a deadlift because concentric, but no eccentric lowering because they didn't want any added weight or load to the body. They would only do like a floor press because it wasn't the full range of motion of a bench press for muscle mass. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that you put on muscle that moves you and you use modalities that build those muscles in a way that's going to, he said, build the nervous system firing, which is why I did really heavy movements. But then do sport movements as well. They're going to fire the nervous system. But in the weight room, if our goal is to get strength out of it, and let's just think about traditional resistance exercises, it's through a means of simply using the best method that we can find that allows for the most strength in those muscles without excessive bulk and hypertrophy. Yeah, I love that. What was the term you said? Mass-specific Ma mass specific force. force. And so that's, yeah, that's what I would call functional hypertrophy like Funk there's a, yeah, there's a lot of it. ways for it we so twist it. okay let me be a youtube commenter but max what about zion zion is very hypertrophy he's very big and he obviously uses it all and my thing is this it's different to have it and be built like that naturally and build it through the weight room so the way that i like to think about it is sometimes uh 
you know, somebody like Zion and a lot of football players who are huge and they're also explosive, they might lift in the weight room, but they're kind of just like that. Like Zion is who he is. He would be that pretty jacked even if he didn't have the weight room. It's almost like he is the apple that was, you know, the the hardware came with the software. And that hardware really knows how to work with that software because it came together. It's built together. If I go out and I build Zion's level of hypertrophy, now I'm going out and I'm buying a random hardware and I'm buying a completely different software and I'm just hoping that they pair together. And I'm going and every day I'm going to Best Buy and trying to find new cords to make them pair. I am never going to pair my software brain to my hardware muscles the same way that he does because he has it naturally. So when people look at it and go, there's no like limit on hypertrophy because of guys like Zion, you're looking at it the wrong way because he's natural and you're building it synthetically in the weight room. Now, we're not saying that hypertrophy is bad. Hypertrophy can lead to more total force. Absolutely. But there's a cutoff point where more is going to actually be detrimental. Let's think of, I love that example, by the way. And thank you for answering my YouTuber question. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I asked myself. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's awesome because I was going to say that. Now, if you think about development, let's think about it like a pie. I like pies. Um, hopefully, we get pizza. I like pies. Let's just stop big, it there. Big pie guy. I like pies. If you guys want to make me ever want to come talk to me, if you bring me a rhubarb pie and a pint of ice cream, we're good, and six man. Six coffees. So we're straight. having a day. Um, but so think about like a pie. I cannot can't laugh without saying that. <laughs> and we want to distribute this pie. And regardless of how much I use pie because food is energy. And um, we only have so much energy that we have in our body. Or at least time in the day. And we have to distribute this pie in order to feed different. We have two dogs, basically. We have a dog, which is our nervous system. We have a dog that's our muscular system. We have to take this pie and we got to distribute it to the dogs in order to make sure we get the best outcome so these dogs can function together and be great, you know, dogs and whatever dogs do. But the point is that if I already have a dog that's a two-headed monster naturally, I, I can just give all my pie to the one dog and it's going to grow. Like Zion Williamson, as an example, was the two-headed monster. He had this natural hypertrophy and then he had the nervous system on top of it. So regardless of what you gave him in a sporting context, he didn't need to spend time building and spending energy developing physiological properties. He just had the machinery that got fine-tuned and neurologically wired. So you got this freak, right, the two-headed monster that is Zion Williamson because no one else is really like him. LeBron maybe somewhat in that Bo Jackson, another guy. But those guys like a bodybuilder has to lift and lift and lift and get really strong. They're not spending pieces of that pie on developing the nervous system through movement because they've already spent it in the weight room right so you don't have the opportunity you just have two dogs and somehow zion got the you know the area 51 edition where he's this like unbelievably gifted individual because he has the hypertrophy base already on him he right. has the innate strength so all he's done his whole life or all he really has to do is guess what dude you got a big engine in it and all you got to do is play hoops and your body's going to learn how to use that engine mm -hmm. as opposed to having, you know, trying to feed one dog to get that engine bigger and one dog get that nervous system bigger. Right. No, 100%. I love that. So 
I man, I want to keep going. Can we talk about adaptive energy. Point, There's so much. I'm gonna, we, uh, I've held back on that. We'll I save know, that for another day. Well, well, we're gonna save that for some edu stuff that we're gonna film tomorrow. Uh, so Max and I are just locking in all week, just creating probably hundreds of hours of content. But yes. uh, <laughs> I don't look, know if that's possible to create. Hundreds. Oh, I think so. We got five days. We got 24 hours in a day. Oh, you're right. You do the math. I had a lot of coffee, but we can't sleep. <laughs> that's the only stipulation well we here's sleep. the thing i we did prep we i think we've prepped already i mean i don't want to say i don't want to go on a limb but we had a lot of content already yeah I, we have put in the groundwork before this this yeah. is the first the meeting of the minds the two-headed dog right this is this is this is the two-headed dog. millie yeah yeah exactly <laughs> the sweetest dog ever she is she is so we got to get back to millie and we got to go film some more content for edge you so i'm gonna cut max off which is tough to do because that boy can talk that boy and Calvin, we made it so easy on you. We went one take, no break, no mess ups. So you have no job anymore. You don't even have to edit. <laughs> you're, Calvin's you're fired, on, bro. Calvin's you're over here. Fired. He's not interested we in it. We don't need Calvin anymore. We, Calvin, take, keep no your shoe on, dude. Don't no. Hey, don't throw it at me. <laughs> I love it. So guys, uh hope you enjoyed this podcast. This is just the tip of the iceberg, man. We're just getting going. This is the dynamic warm-up, dude. We haven't even got to the <laughs> this is, We're on the bus. Phase, we got we got the, the headphones bus. in. We're getting ready to go to, our, come out of the locker room. Dude, we got our sweatsuit on. We haven't even started to unzip it. Like it's a wrap, dude. So, anyways, we gotta get off this podcast because we gotta go uh, do some edge you stuff. Hey, be on the lookout for our announcement on the official drop. We want to get you guys all involved, man. Whether you're a current sports scientist, a strength and conditioning coach, somebody looking to get to the next level in general fitness. Maybe you're just an athlete and you just love this information. You want the top information. This could be for you as well. Uh, so yeah, man, I appreciate you being on the podcast and uh, you guys are going to be hearing a lot from this guy. So get used to his voice. Yeah. And we're going to be putting this one on the strong by science podcast too. So big thank you to Calvin, my man. Appreciate it. Uh, let me and Paul obviously as well. We use the facility because we're going to be using this on, on my platform. Anytime I can steal someone else's equipment to put on my shit, I'm always happy. Yeah. By the way, um, everyone should probably flood Paul's inbox with the idea that we should get breakaway sweats for the podcast. <laughs> I think I should bring back breakaway sweats. Wow. Edge you breakaway Ed, sweats. Edge you breakaway oh sweats. Oh, my gosh. It's brilliant. I would. That would be awesome. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, I got, every time we go to film, we got to rip them off in and a dramatic. I, I don't. I don't want to ruin this. But I'm gonna a little bit. I'm gonna pitch the idea. I'm saying this live, so we're all gonna Paul. That every time we have an exclusive interview with someone here, I want to get a T-shirt with their face on it. And so every time we have a new face of that oh, person, that'd be sick. so by the end of it, but that shirt's gonna fill up super fast. I know that's the idea. At the end of it, we can have the, just a wall of the shirts. Oh, just the shirts with their faces on it. I like that. We're doing that. I know. I want to do it really that. bad. Yeah, <laughs> that'd no, be hilarious. I'm excited. <laughs> Damn. All right. We're, 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 we're pretty excited. As you guys can see, we've been talking about ideas for a long time and we're, we're just now like really getting going and, and locking in this week. So, hey, be on the lookout uh, for more content to come. Until next time, we're out.